We've been over this. I'm not depressed. For three weeks, you barely got out of bed. You told me yourself you've had several episodes of uncontrollable crying. Just a little bushed is all. I can handle it. Look, seasonal affective disorder, which is what this is, is very common around here and in Scandinavia, basically in the Arctic Circle, okay? It's physiological. It has nothing to do with how tough you are. If you have prolonged lack of sunlight, it will inhibit the production of serotonin, which will inevitably lead to, to symptoms of depression. I mean, I, I could prescribe an antidepressant, but I just, I like to avoid medication wherever I can. And I've seen this work on other patients. It's just a tool. It's not a cure. But if you use it properly, you will notice pronounced elevations in, in your mood in just a few days. All right. Good. Charles, have you ever been the victim, like, like Walt here, the victim of this seasonal affective disorder, this depression? I don't think so. I, I think... <laughs> My depression comes in regular for <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but that's like such a such a good setup. Post, uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> such a good setup joke right there. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, one. I'm generally not affected by the weather. I I don't think that um like a clear overcast day is gonna cause me any problems. Um What about what about like uh let's take quarantine for example? Like being quarantined inside your house so much. Like I'll 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 just admit that being in quarantine, I think, made me realize just how much of an introvert that I am. And I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Definitely there are times that were really tough and like hard to get through. But also left to my own devices, I, I feel like I might never go out of the house <laughs> if I didn't have to. I've got I, everything I need here, which is bad. I recognize that's very bad. Yeah. I mean, uh, it is bad. But also, I, I kind of feel the same way as you. Like, yeah. I did not, there was, uh, I don't know, because it almost seemed like it was like a, it was turning an us problem into a me problem sometimes. What Whenever you, you would see, you would sometimes see posts where people were like absolutely going bananas. And yeah. they were just like, I like, I cannot handle this. This is uh, the, the worst thing that's ever like occurred and everything. And I don't want to downplay the significance of their problem, but uh, everybody was literally doing that. Mm-hmm. Like it was, yeah. a, it was a national it lockdown. Was, yeah. So it wasn't like a particularly special thing. So I always felt like that was, uh, in my mind, I always felt like, all right, you can, you can turn it down just like a little bit. Like everyone's like, going through the same, going yeah, through Like this. everything, yeah. everyone's going to have, have this same problem. We're all human. It's not like one human being's like, I'm completely fine being locked up in a closet forever. <laughs> it's like, no, of course not. Like you're right. going to have somebody that's going to be like, yeah, of course I want to have, you know, see the sun. So, <laughs> um, obviously I'm also of that caliber as well, but I'm with you as well. Where like, I think I could be left to my own devices. I don't think that was hit, uh, really particularly hard, yeah. honestly. Like well, I, I don't, I don't think it was that bad. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have a lot to talk about with this, um, with in, in Walt's storyline in this episode. But what, but what we are talking about today is the TV show Northern Exposure. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast, and uh, yeah, we every week we'll take an episode of Northern Exposure, overanalyze it, and um, also by way of trying to expand the reach of the show, we introduce. Uh, this this series to one friend at a time. Each episode, we take a friend and give them an episode and see what they think about the show out of context. Does it stand up on its own? And really just to get sort of like a fresh perspective, because uh, we're going to be talking about this episode for 
another hour or so, and then we'll we'll uh, give it over to the to the guest. Yeah, I feel like this episode is going to be one in which we're probably going to be getting into the weeds. I feel like there's a lot of cogs within this one that can be examined uh, underneath a variety of lenses. So I want to take a look through there. But yeah, yeah. Before we even get to there, who were the who were the director and the writer? Yeah. Well, first I'll just say yeah. I think you're right. It's a pretty chock full episode with a lot a lot of content. But uh, let's so let's dive in. I, I guess uh, the director is Michael Vittis. He directed the um, previous episodes Learning Curve, which I believe is season three, and Might Makes Right, which is season five this this season. Uh, this is. The 17th episode in season five, it's called Una Volta en l'Inverno, which I think we discussed at the end of last episode as meaning something like one time, once upon a time in winter, one time in winter, uh, one night in winter, I think is also a translation, something in that vibe uh, from Italian, obviously. The writer of this episode, Jeff Melvoin, who has a long list of credits, it just keeps growing. I'll just go through... All of them right now from uh, the first episode that he wrote in Northern Exposure, Dateline Sicily, Democracy in America, Crime and Punishment, Ill Wind, and Love's Labor Mislaid. That was sort of like a double header in um, season four. Then we have Cottage for Uncle Manny, and then Altered Egos and A River Doesn't Run Through It, another double header that happened earlier this season. And the last episode he wrote before this was A Bolt from the Blue, which we just covered. Um, I believe that was, was that 14? Yeah. Episode 14 of the fifth season. He's going to continue to write uh, the next episode that we're going to watch, Charles, episode 18. And I'm sure he's got more credits down the line. Lastly, the air date for this March 7th, 1994. Dang, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we've seen... Like, we're underneath pretty good, capable hands right there. Definitely recognize a lot of those episodes. I want to say that this episode is kind of, in a way, I think it exists in a capsule of its own because it kind of begins and ends in a very similar manner. Mm. So I I think that the episode title is actually pretty apt. What you're saying is like, it was like one night, one dream, Mm -hmm. just like this one-off sequence right there because... This one has a very vacuum feel to it. Yes. Yeah, it ha- it, it is one of those sort of episodic and then also vacuum in, and also in a sense of just being enclosed. Like we talked a bit with that uh, soundbite with Walt in the very beginning of this podcast. You know, the characters are going to be kind of confined in a lot of different ways. Um, and so it does have that sort of uh, that vacuum feeling. I guess you could kind of call this a... Would you, could you even call this a bottle episode or that would maybe apply mostly to like, for instance, in this episode, we'll get there, but Joel and Maggie get stuck in an ice storm and sort of have to stay in this small shack for, you know, the majority of the episode. Does that qualify as bottle? Uh, it kind of <laughs> like, I think like for a bottle episode, you have to start out in that location okay. and you have to end <laughs> in that location. Um, anything that would take you out of it. Uh, wait, wait, no, Joel leaves the place too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I to mean, go we, find Ed. So we, so we just have like a bottle sequence in the middle, <laughs> I guess you could say. Yeah. We have a sequence in which him and Maggie are trapped, but before we get there, let's talk about the very first scene and then we'll, mm-hmm. uh, we'll divvy it up. We'll see where we want to go. Yeah. Choose your own adventure style. All right. But the very first scene begins with Joel 
in an obvious dream sequence. Like it's like <laughs> you know that this is going down. He's at a medical conference, the one that he's about to go to. He's just dreaming about that day, and he's wearing uh, what I think is kind of particular. He he's wearing very gray, like grayish like white suit. Yeah, I wrote that down. I like his um his. It, it, you do make a good point though. The the color is very kind of drab in contrast to what we're about to see. But I did want to do a little style check here with Joel. He's got like a white. Uh, overcoat, a white shirt, black pants, and white sneakers. So you get that high contrast between the sneakers and the pants, and you know the white sneakers on black pants. And I also like his tie, uh, but I th- believe it's mostly black and white as well. But I think what you're getting to is when he's walking through like this conference hall, um, assuming in like a hotel, he gets into the you know the the banquet room, and it's super like Caribbean themed party where it's pretty much like all women in bikinis. Like there are guys there as well, but like all the doctors here are just beautiful women in bikinis to, to fit yeah. that sort of Caribbean vibe, I guess. <laughs> I wasn't totally in love with that. <laughs> because the reason why, it wasn't because of like uh, some sort of prude manner. It was more that at this stage, we knew that like Joel was in a relationship. And I know that you can't control mm. what's happening in a dream. <laughs> I, I understand that. But I don't, I don't think it was explicitly implying it, but I did kind of get the feel that like maybe Joel was like, oh, great. Like He's this kind is of like fantastic. Ogling or whatever. Yeah. 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 And then, like, it, to his credit, he, he, he really isn't. Right. Like, he kind of is just like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, what are we having? What are we having to drink? It might you just know? be like what the scene is suggesting to the viewer, perhaps. Right. So I'm not like totally dogging on Joel. <laughs> I'm going to say, actually, uh, I didn't, I, maybe it's because I'm a little foolish, but I wasn't at first keyed in that this was a dream. It kind of slowly dawned on me. Uh, but maybe it was just because like I was... I think maybe I just started this in the morning and I was like getting my coffee going. I think by the time you realize like he's just surrounded by women, I'm like, okay, this seems like a little too kooky for Sicily. I mean, I guess they're not in Sicily, but too kooky for this to not be a dream sequence that we expect in Northern Exposure. What else can we say here? I, I liked the um, the way this is shot. It feels like it's kind of just steady cam following Joel around, kind of moving through this entire space. And there might be some cutaways, but I imagine it's kind of like mostly an unbroken steady cam following shot. We have a steel band, uh, a steel drum band, you know, the guys playing the sort of like Jamaican sounding music. And um, yeah, I mean, what, what happens? They like sort of like order dr- order drinks and this is just like paradise in a way for Joel until he does in fact wake up from the dream. Yeah, I really like this shot because it pans toward the window, which is showing like an assortment of winter themes, Uh, a tree that is trying to grow, snow, frost on the windows. But that pan that it's doing is very well done. And then it flips and then it pans onto Joel's face. Right. And I think we even get a little bit of a slow zoom into that window, the bedroom window that you're describing. And I also want to add, it's just pitch black outside. I mean, we see the snow blowing, we see like some tree, but it's very dark and uh, just highly contrast to juxtaposing, you know, what Joel is imagining in his dream. Uh, We can almost assume that he wants to escape uh, his reality because he wants to, he's dreaming about this sort of paradise of a conference. 
Right. And that theme of darkness is going to be carrying over to all the other scenes. So, for example, the one that comes right after the credits is going to be Chris on K-Bear. And while he's speaking, he's wearing, I don't know the name of it. Do you know the name of it? It's a visor. It's a funny visor. And we don't really know what the reasoning is for this. Maybe it's just something Chris likes to wear to illuminate like the the dark workspace. We do find out, obviously, after a couple scenes that... This um, this visor is like a medical prescription to combat seasonal affective disorder. Right. I, I didn't know if it had a name mm-hmm. for like this particular visor. You know what? Uh, actually, I was looking at Moose Chick and she links to a uh, <laughs> an Amazon link of the light visor. Uh, so if you wanted to get one like your like, you know, it's not exactly the same thing they use on the episode, but if you wanted to get one for yourself, it's a two hundred dollar light oh, therapy wow. glasses is what it's called. Light visor. Luminet okay. three. So it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't doubt that it's a thing. I think I've read about that before where mm-hmm. in Scandinavian countries. I think they have to get like some sort of like light booth of some sort mm. in order to get the daily nutrition that they right. need from the sun. You know, it has all sorts of vitamins and stuff. <laughs> but for the town of Sicily, they're experiencing another bout. It feels like this happens. Yeah. I mean, did we just get through this? Well, there was, uh, let's see, what was the episode that we just watched? It was kind of more Aurora Borealis themed. Um, Mr. Sandman. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, yeah, that's the one I'm thinking about. But we have had episodes in the past like uh, Midnight Sun where it's just the sun is always out. Um, We've got a lot of moon episodes, a lot of Borealis episodes. Uh, We've had episodes about isolation, for sure. I'm thinking of the one when Joel uh, believes that his cabin is haunted. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Maybe it's called Lost and Found. But that kind of gives me the same vibes as this episode. I don't know if we've had like an Eternal Night episode. But we do in this episode, Chris calls this a solar drought in his... um, you know, K-Bear monologue here. We've got quick vibe check here. Just the music that's playing is sort of like this, you know, jazzy, bluesy, drab music, kind of, I wouldn't say melancholy, but what's the word I'm looking for? Just, you know, like kind of bluesy sounding. Uh, and it's very dark. The snow is blowing, the wind. It just sets the perfect tone for... What I would say, this is just kind of feels very cozy feeling because we're inside with Chris out away from the elements. There may be like, you know, darkness and snow outside, but we're comfortable inside with this music in the booth there. Um, so I, I think just from the start here and throughout the episode, we get a wonderful feeling of, um, and again, maybe this ties into my introversion, my introvertedness of just wanting to stay inside, but this seems very cozy to me. <laughs> yeah, the lighting definitely reflects that, uh, especially in the booth of K-Bear. You can see that Chris is illuminated generally just by the visor and mm-hmm. the on the air sign that's in the back. That one it provides like a really nice imagery right Mm -hmm. there. And that's going to be carrying throughout the entire episode where things are being solely lit by one source of illumination. Mm. But yeah, I think this is like a perfect way to paint for the rest of the episode because all three of them are going to be connected toward this, this isolation that you're talking about, this light that's not going to be coming. Um, Who do you want to go and explore first? We got Ruth Ann and Shelly. We have Walt and we have Joel and Maggie. Right. I would also argue that we have a very small plot with the mayor 
in this episode. That's, that's true. Yeah. But it, you could really, we could kind of sum it up pretty quickly, but um, maybe we save that for a little bit later. Um, let's go with Walt. Cause we talked about that opening soundbite. Maybe we can roll into that as it actually plays out in the episode. I believe that is the first scene that we see Walt in. And it's the scene where we get this sort of introduction of um, the visor and how this all works. Um, I guess we can, (laughs) we're going to get into Walt, but maybe we can sort of talk about uh, what the mayor Edna is doing um, right before this. So the mayor, um, you know, she's largely not a part of the series Northern Exposure, but she did return, like I think in the last episode in a very small part here. I think she has a, a, a bigger role in this episode. You know, I was thinking about this. I don't know if we brought this up last episode, Charles, but just thinking about like, why now are they deciding to bring Edna um, into Northern Exposure? And I think it might be in part to sort of replace this um, Maurice. He's he's not in the the last episode or this episode. Apparently, um, you know, we had talked about this, Charles. Apparently the actor who plays Maurice had like actually injured himself. And that's what they say. I think in the last episode, they say that Maurice hurt his leg or something. So he's not going to be attending or whatever. Um, so maybe this Edna character is introduced as a way to fill in for the empty space that is created by hmm. Maurice's absence. I like that because it makes the town feel more alive whenever you involve more cast members and especially with like the mayor. Like that's a big role, yeah. like the mayor of the town. Yeah, we need to. I wish we had seen her more because it seems like she's obviously like free to do this because she was in the last episode. She's in this episode. Like, I just feel like maybe there is a lack of, of, um, need for her character for from the writing department. Like they just never really included that. In fact, there are episodes where, actually, no, maybe I'm coming back on that now because um, there's an episode, I think, whenever they need the mayor, but she's like not available. So someone else steps in. I, obviously, I can't remember the specifics, but I remember I'm like, oh man, I wish Edna actually would have showed up in this episode because they could use the mayor now or they reference that the mayor's like away or can't be bothered. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. What's going on with the mayor here? Yeah, it's a relatively short scene is that we're seeing her be boxed in by these caribou. She's trying to get out. She's trying to get to a certain place. The neat thing, at least in my opinion on the scene, is that she shines a light on the caribou. She shines it with the headlights of her car, her truck, and it doesn't really scare the uh, the caribou. <laughs> they, they remain in place and she kind of just gives a shrug and she's you know, she she is resigned to her fate, but you can tell that, like, she's going to try to fight it. Yeah, I can't remember if it's this scene or close after this. I think she's, like, honking the horn, and she's, like, yelling. Like, this is obviously a big um, bother, annoyance for her. She needs to, like, you know, clear out this whole mess of caribou. But, um, but something I really like about this entire episode, but I'm noticing already here, is that there is a lot of moments I think we get with the, with the caribou, but with, with a lot of moments in this episode where there's really no, I mean, there's a lot of music in this episode, but there's a lot of moments without music and a lot of still, you know, shots where there's no dialogue, no music. We sort of just hear the wind. We hear the sounds of the hooves of the caribou. We just get this very quiet sort of stillness that I can just only relate to this just natural landscape. Yeah. Uh, I wonder how they got there. Like, yeah, you know, Chris brings it up later in the episode and, and he suggests that, um, 
you know, it, it could be possible that they're just looking for a change of scenery, just like we are, you know, because <laughs> everyone's like wants to get away from the, um, the eternal darkness. So, uh, but anyway, the reason why I wanted to bring that up before hopping into Walt is because uh, these caribou sort of serve in a way as um, a bridge between scenes and it sort of unites all of Sicily and kind of joins these storylines together. I mean, the caribou aren't everywhere at once, but it seems like, for instance, where we're going to Joel's office in this scene, the deer are running by outside. So they kind of like bring the story with them and we follow now to Joel's office where he's fixing Walt up with uh, one of the visors. And we, we, you know, basically that soundbite that we just played, he's talking with Walt about, um, about how this can, how this can help. I think it's interesting that he says um, he could prescribe antidepressants, but he wants to avoid medication uh, when, when he can. That seems maybe like, you know, not, not the rule of thought that we, that is represented uh, today, it seems like doctors maybe over medicate, but uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> that's that's the way they're depicted now. I think. Ah, uh, yeah, definitely with you know oxycotton, but uh, <laughs> that's a very heavy subject. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the neat things that I observed in the scene again was the lighting, but also it was aided by the blocking of mm. uh, Joe and Walt. So initially, Joel's the one standing up and Walt is on the patient's table and Joel's dictating to Walt to be like, okay, what you need to do is like, you need to wear this visor, provides this amount of lux for a minute. It's mm -hmm. healthy for you. And then once Walt accepts it and he's like, uh, okay, he gets up and then he moves on the side of where Joel is, which is where the light source is at. There's a light at the back. Mm. That's like the only source of illumination. And a camera is always capturing it. And then Joel sits where Walt is at. It's not like there's like a power dynamic flip or anything like that. Mm. But it is telling that like Walt's kind of accepting of like what's going to happen. So like that's why he gets up yeah. and then he blocks over to where the light is. It's like stepping into the light. You know, like yeah, seeing, I mean, seeing it, uh, it from Joel's perspective. Right. He says that a lot. What's that? Stepping into the light. <laughs> oh, yeah. like he like literally says that. <laughs> uh, well, the next scene we get with Walt, we can just really see that he's, he's loving this visor so much so that he's already burnt out one of the bulbs. Like he comes back another day or later um, to the office and he's got to get with Marilyn to get him a new bulb for the visor. She says, you know, you're not supposed to wear this out in the snow because the moisture from the snow could, it's probably what happened to the visor, probably, um, destroyed the bulb. You're, she also warns that you're not supposed to drive with the visor on. She's kind of warning him against all these things. And, um, yeah, we can see from this interaction that, Marilyn is pointing out basically that, uh, that that Walt is already abusing this this visor. Right. Marilyn's also bathed in a lot of light. She's brightly lit. And then Walt steps out into the darkness with his visor. And that's going to be his sole source of illumination right there. Singing a little song. Um, I'm guessing it's called Polly Wally Doodle. Yeah. Polly Wally Doodle. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's just, I don't know. That's just one of those like old fashioned songs, right? <laughs> Yeah, have no, you never heard? Like the, have you heard this one before? No, have you? Really? Oh, yeah, no. Seems like something I've I heard, heard this? when I was like a kid, like a nursery rhyme or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, what happens next with Walt? Um, he's talking to Chris in the brick. Do you remember this scene? He's talking to Chris about deficit financing. He goes on and on about. Uh, I was hoping maybe you'd have some some uh, knowledge in this area, but. Um, 
what, whatever Walt is saying, Chris has no idea what's going on. He's like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> yeah. So it's not a, like a, a super complex idea on the surface, but then once you dig into it, then obviously there's going to be a lot of variations to where you're going to agree or disagree on the implementation of it. But mm-hmm. yeah, very broadly speaking, uh, what Walt is talking about is deficit spending. So what it is is that governments occasionally need to spend during a crisis and The deficit spending exact definition is when the government spends more than it collects in revenue during a given budget year. So it typically makes up this difference by borrowing money, which generates debt, and increases the amount that the government has to pay in interest. It was, as Walt points out, developed by Milton Keynes. I like to call him Keynes. Oh, yeah. Um, how does how does Walt pronounce it? Like Keynes or something? Keynes. Yeah. <laughs> there is a Y in there. But I've, yeah. I've also heard it pronounced Keynes, I think. Yeah, I, I always just liked Keynes for some reason. <laughs> but in Keynes' 1936 book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, Keynes argued that during a recession or a depression, a decline in consumer spending could be balanced by an increase in government spending. So essentially, what Keynes is saying is that like, when you get to an emergency, the government can be like, all right, well, like we should spend some more. We should like make sure that the people are going to be taken care of and we'll go more into debt in order to service the citizens to make sure that it doesn't spiral out of control. And it may not be the most ideal thing to do in a perfect system. If we were in a vacuum, you never want to have to do this, but mm-hmm. you never exist in a vacuum. So Keynes argued that like, all right, during these emergencies, we're going to flip this switch and we're going to go like super into debt because we need to help out the citizens. And then once we're out of it, we can uh, raise taxes, we can remove some of the spending programs, we can uh, take out the stuff that is uh, that was getting us into this debt in the first place. So it's like a very quick Band-Aid solution to get us out. Right. Walt says something like, deficit financing was never supposed to be a permanent solution or something like that. But then he goes on and talks about many other... Um, Economists, maybe, and he's like, yeah, now Galbraith. we're gonna Galbraith. What's that? Gal- uh, Galbraith. Okay, I think is how you call him. Yeah, I, I've, I've never heard the name spoken out loud. I've what, seen the name. What do you think he's building to here, or is it something that's just like even too hard to follow? Uh, it's not particularly too hard on what he's trying to say. So, like, uh, he is correct that it was not intended to be a permanent thing. And it can be a permanent thing because if it was, then you, you would just spiral out of control just in the other direction. Um, Keynes advocated that like once you reached your goal, you're just going to increase the taxes and cut the spending programs. But the problem with that is that it's very unpopular to do politically. It's very hard mm-hmm. to run on the platform to be like, I'm going to make you pay more and also you're going to get less government benefits. Right. So oftentimes politicians don't follow through. <laughs> it kind of still stays in that same course, though, not nearly to the degree of when it was like initially implemented. So like by that, I mean, like obviously in 2020, the government took on a lot of debt because mm-hmm. it needed to go into deficit spending. It was something in which we had never tackled before. So, of course, they had to go and implement this. The consequences of it are, uh, you know, we can feel it today in inflation. But mm-hmm. the problem is that if they didn't do it, then the problem would have been much worse. So, 
what I'm getting at here to summarize it all up in a very, very <laughs> simple surface level analysis, because this is not an economist podcast. I do not. <laughs> I am here to tell you like the very basics of this because <laughs> economists of all stripe kind of disagree on right. like, the level there's, which is to be there's implemented. There's a lot of different, um, a, a lot of uh, professionals disagree. That's what you're saying. Yeah, this is a nuanced topic. <laughs> so <laughs> what I'm saying is that there is a moment in government histories in which they're going to have to spend a lot in order to help out the citizens. And this is not meant to be forever, but sometimes we don't completely overhaul the system because it's wildly unpopular to do so. So we might keep some of the spending programs or we might not raise taxes as much as we should be doing. But the only reason we even did it in the first place is because the alternative was much, much worse. I think that there is actually something to be said in this statement that the alternative is much worse mm -hmm. that can be played into the episode. And I think in some roundabout way, Walt saying this line does have subtext. Now, a lot of people are going to be like, Charles, what, the, Charles, what are you talking about? Like, that, no. <laughs> that's just a line to make him look smart. I think, uh, I think we could just, I wasn't thinking about this when I was watching the episode, but just hearing you talk about this, Maybe this is the connection you're trying to draw, but I think we can relate this idea of deficit spending to um, pumping your eyeballs with you know, artificial light from this visor to help you in this time of unprecedented darkness. Um, but obviously, as we see, as this episode is unfurling, I think Walt is using this past the limit. Like Just like deficit financing, this was not supposed to be a permanent solution. But as we can see... And every scene with Walt, he's always got this visor on. He doesn't take a break from it. Right. No, no, no. I think that's really good. I think that where you took my points and inferred them to, I think it works out perfectly. I wonder if the writers had that in mind. And at first I was like, I don't know, this is kind of just like a convenient parallel. But the more this happens all the time, the more I think about it, I'm like, there's such a connection here, but that's probably just my own bias. <laughs> and I'm like, the writers knew they knew what they were doing. I think that like. If you take into account the background of the writers, there could be something there. What I mean by this is that like in the 70s and 80s, um, there was a high rate of inflation and it was underneath Jimmy Carter's administration. Mm -hmm. That thought of rising of uh, deficit spending mm -hmm. could be playing into their mind right there. Yeah, like they, you know, this is kind of they've lived through it at this point. So it might have like trickled in there for sure. But so while Walt is talking with Chris about uh, all this economics, Edna walks into the brick. She calls attention to everyone there. We've got to do something about these caribou. And, uh, you know, everyone's pretty just kind of bystander here. Like they don't, they're just like, uh, I mean, I don't know what you want to do about them. Just, I, I think Marilyn even says like, live and let live. Like, don't bother the caribou. Uh, Walt has some ideas though. His, his idea is to blast them with a hundred hertz tone, just like a low bass frequency uh, as loud as he can and get them like, you know, running away. I think Edna has a similar idea. You know, she wants to get some four wheelers together and bang some pots of pans, just make a lot of noise and spook them. Yeah. And then he like gets into Shakespeare, starts <laughs> quoting some, some heavy um, stuff right there. Henry V or whatever. He's like <laughs> everyone into the breach or once more to the breach. Yes, that one. And Chris gets up and goes and talks with um, Holling and they have a little side conversation. They're like, is he like dipping into the Akvakeet, which is 
oh, some sort right. of like it's a distilled spirit right. that is usually made in Scandinavia. It's distilled from grain or potatoes, flavored with a variety of herbs. And Holling says, "Like no, 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 he's just been drinking root beer right there." <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because they're like, "Hey, what's going on with Walt?" I mean, Marilyn says like he's he's abusing the visor, but. I mean, it's obviously the visor. Like they pan over to Walt and you can just see him. He looks crazy uh, with the visor on. I mean, I know everyone uses, or a lot, probably a lot of people in Sicily are using the visor, but I mean, I think it's just kind of obvious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what could be causing him to do that? It's like, what, what do you think? What do you, take a wild stab in the dark. Let's let's see what happens. I also love when Walt is quoting Henry V. Um you know, everyone's reaction, again, is just like silence. And Edna's just like, well, come on, aren't we going to do something about this? It's just, I think just this whole, this whole scene is so weird that you really can't do anything about it. Just kind of let it pass over you. Like no one says anything in response to Walt's outburst. Uh, Edna's finally just like, all right, I'll just do it myself. I didn't, I didn't become mayor to win a popularity contest. I'm just going to make this happen. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is uh, kind of carrying forward into the next scene with Walt because Holling's coming over to his own house to kind of see what's up, kind of diagnose the problem of what's making Walt be so uncharacteristically un-Walt. Um, <laughs> he goes in and Walt talks to him about what's playing on the stereo and he's saying like, oh, like, oh man, like listen to this jazz musician. He's so much more better with his left hand than that other person. <laughs> uh, I didn't know this until I looked it up, but... I looked into Walt's Wikipedia page, the actor's Wikipedia page. Okay. It is... What's his name? Do you know how to pronounce his name? Yeah, what's it's his like, name again? It's a cool it, name. What's it? Moultrie Moultrie Patton? Yeah. Okay. I looked into Moultrie Patton's Wikipedia page, and I have two things to say on this. One, he actually is a jazz musician. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, he's kind of speaking That's from awesome. experience. <laughs> Number two, Lee, have you looked on the Wikipedia page? Of Moultrie Patton? Yeah. I mean, I know I have, but I did not know. I, I mean, I obviously haven't read it all because I did not know. I'm going to look this no, up. No, no, no. Go, go to go, his Wikipedia okay. page right now, man. One sec. <laughs> look at his picture. It's the, um, are you talking about the headstone? The tombstone? Yes. <laughs> I've never seen that. Have you seen that, man? It's like, I want to know more about Moultrie Patton, this actor that I like. And like the first thing you see is like, he's dead. It's like, <laughs> what? What? This is what you want to know about him. He is dead. Who approved this profile picture, man? It's just his tombstone. If you Google him, there's a nice picture of him kind of leaning against a piano. He looks yeah. pretty um, pretty slick. I think he looks lovely in that. I yeah. don't know why they went with this one. <laughs> this, like, come on, man. How is that even appropriate? It's the most current picture they have of him is go to his grave and snap a... <laughs> Snap a picture of his grave. That's, that's the that's most That's got to be changed. That's got to, there's no way that's like, how do they approve that? You know what would be funny? It's like he died in 2009. So he was 89 years old. He died in 2009. But if that picture was like grave at Arlington National Cemetery, because he was a um, World War II vet. Uh, but it'd be funny if the subtitle was grave at Arlington National Cemetery. And then they put the date on it, like 2019 or something. It's like <laughs> he died in 2009. <laughs> <laughs> I right. just, 
I just um, think it's messed up that they don't have his actual picture uh, yeah, right there. I agree. Oh my god, that, that was the biggest you know, draw for me. Wikipedia, on that Wikipedia, page. Wikipedia portraits are kind of bad a lot of times, right? They really do, no. Okay, so like my understanding of it, from my recollection, is that it can't come from the person itself. Like, I think the profile picture has to be submitted by, like, someone that has, like, no affiliation with the individual, and it has to be, like, out in the public space. More like journalist photo or something. I've seen some ridiculously 144p quality photos for people, (laughs) like, famous, like, I think for a while, Benedict Cumberbatch had, like, the worst photo I've ever seen. Like, it was not like, (laughs) someone's phone camera. (laughs) I think it's oh, wild. Hey, sorry. This is really dumb, but uh, one of my favorite Wikipedia photographs, the the picture on the Wikipedia page for Clark Peters, he's an um, actor from The Wire, Clark with an E at the end. Uh, it's just, <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny to me, because he looks like, kind of looks a little strange in that photo, and he's a good looking guy. He's a cool looking guy, but in this photo, it's very... Just the eyes, the way he's looking at the camera. He's got a bandana over his head. Yeah, that's that's not right. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> that's that's not a right photo. Come on. It's not very accurate. <laughs> oh, my Lord. It's very funny to me, though, that photo. Um, but back to the always, scene. Oh, uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, no go I'm just going to say, that, that photo's from 2010, man. Right. That's 12 years ago. Yeah. Like, there's been no other current... Like, ah, gosh. I could update this for sure. He was in The Five Bloods in 2020. Like, I was looking at, like, his... uh, I mean, he's been acting still, so... Yeah, no, it's not like he's out... He's not out there in the public sphere. Like, people can get better photos of him. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, Yeah, so what's going on in this scene is that Hollings taking a look at Walt, and he's trying to see what's going on with him. You can kind of tell that... Holling knows they're like this this visor is kind of bad stuff now to Walt he says like oh this is fantastic like I have finally seen the light my neurons have been activated this is the thing that I needed to make me feel alive this is maybe one of my favorite moments in the episode Walt is talking about how his temperament has changed and not only like does he feel more energized but he's become a better person because of this visor, which sounds crazy. But I really, really love this monologue that he gives here. I would play it, but there's obviously the Gene Krupa music in the background. He says, I never told this to anyone, but I used to, every winter, I used to kick my dogs. Old Prince would hide at the sound of my footsteps. Now look. And then we get this really good simple, like shot, a cutaway shot. It's just the dog chilling there by the fire, just laying there. He kind of looks up at them because he knows they're talking about him, but he doesn't really know. It's kind of like none the wiser. Not really sure what's going on. Just a really effective shot. And then cutting back to Walt, he says, those dark days are gone, Hauling. I'm seeing things in a whole new light. Uh, So yeah, we can tell that this visor is really weird, that Walt is probably going to burn out, like this can't be healthy. But I just love that this scene offers sort of an argument for this idea that, you know, he's got this deeply ashamed secret uh, that he knows this dark side of him that he's able to overcome now. He can bury that shame and be prideful that he's like improving as a person. You know, that it sounds really good. I guess we just don't know what all else is happening with the visor. Like it's making good happen, but also 
uh, perhaps like with the um, deficit financing, maybe we're going a little too far with that. <laughs> no, I tried to connect it all. And I, I felt like that I got lost in the thread a lot. Like I, I couldn't take a hold of it because what's happening here is that the weather is causing them to do this. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to find some sort of silver lining throughout all of these problems. But you wouldn't need a silver lining if you were already living like a really sunny, glorious day. So yeah. to Walt, he's saying like, oh, I'm wearing this like visor and it's great. Uh, it's making me see things in a whole new light. But he wouldn't be wearing this visor in the first place if the weather wasn't causing him to have this. But as we later see in the next couple of scenes, we'll see that like that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, so it's like, it's really complex in my opinion. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with this idea. I don't know if it's like, I'm incapable of putting together my thoughts or if like, maybe the script was a little bit, um, like if it was meant to be subtextually analyzed, it was also kind of going in that direction. Uh, I don't want to blame the script too much though. Cause I felt yeah. like it was pretty well written. I, 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 like- I don't take umbrage with this. Yeah, I think the intention of the writing in this episode is it's not like they're trying to give a solution to this problem of depression. Like, how do we how do you live in darkness? You know, whether that's environmental darkness or emotional darkness, I think they're just trying to show that it's complicated. Like you're saying, like it's there's not always an easy solution to it. And um, sometimes the even like the easy option, like the visor can backfire. Yeah, I think that that's going to be carried over into the next scene, which is where we're back at the brick and Walt and a unnamed person. Mm. I don't think we do we know this person? No, I haven't. Uh, apparently he's plowing. He's the street plow here, but uh, I don't think we've seen him before. Yeah, he was plowing the streets and Walt apparently almost swerved to hit him. Walt claims that he saw a caribou, but... The plowman says, like, no, there was no caribou. So we can infer that the visor is causing him to see things that Mm. aren't ordinarily (laughs) there. It's, like, too much light. It's kind of blinding him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Holling's like, okay, well, we need to settle this, like, calmly. He's going to put on some coffee. He turns his back to go, like, get that ready. And uh, Walt is already leaving the brick. Like, he uh, won't even listen to to this street plow or to Holling. He's already, like, halfway out. Right. Don't you think it's really interesting that there's so much talks of coffee in this episode, Mm. which is a stimulant. Yeah. It's something that perks you up. And Chris talks about it in his radio address. He's like, get that second cup of Joe. (laughs) This is not the first time that they talk about coffee by this point in the episode. I believe like the other plot lines have at least mentioned coffee before. There's just lots of discussion of it. Yeah. I guess you need that coffee to get you through sometimes. And in a similar way to that visor, it seems. Uh, you need something to combat this darkness. Well, I think Chris and Holling have sort of a solution in mind or... Yeah, wait, hold up. I'm, tr- I'm remembering like what this scene looks like. Is Chris in a car? He is. He's... Do we ever see Chris drive a car? <sighs> Very rarely. It's weird, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really rare that we <laughs> see Chris inside a motor vehicle. He's usually on his motorcycle, though mm-hmm. I'm guessing that the streets are too iced over for him to drive safely. So Makes it's a sense. lot more. Yeah. yeah. It's a safety issue right here. Uh, Chris is telling Holling about how back when he was in West Virginia, they would do a little bit of a tough love thing mm-hmm. for his friend that was addicted to uh, cough syrup with codine in it. <laughs> and he was saying, like, yeah, we would like 
forcefully make him do this. Uh, I think he said like they took out his arm or something. Well, yeah, they kind of talk about how they had to do an intervention and then it's like, you know, did it, um, did it work? And Chris says, well, we had to break his arm because he went for the gun, but he came around after that. And so, um, you know, Holling's like, oh, I see tough love. And it seems like, it seems like from the end of that conversation that they're all planning to go beat up Walt. <laughs> like we got to go kick his <laughs> ass and steal that visor. Yeah. Uh, if it comes to that, you know. Um, before we go into the intervention, let's get back toward the mayor in her short little adventure. Mm-hmm. We're back in daylight now. It's one of the rare hours in which they're having daylight and the Caribou is still congregated. But this time the mayor has a little solution of using this hay, mm-hmm. I want to say. It's yeah. some sort of feed that the caribou like. And she's riding in the truck where the hay is at, and she's going to, you know, drop a little bit of the hay and attract their attention and just basically like, you know, carrot on a stick approach, just <laughs> literally guide them out using this hay. Yeah, and it does seem to be working, actually. Um, I found that was interesting because at first Edna was talking about banging pots and pans and maybe being more of an aggressor to sh- to push them away. And this solution that she's come up with is actually drawing them closer to follow after, you know, I, I was, she's leading them away, but she's not doing it by pushing them. She's attracting them to, you know, another locale where she can, won't have to worry about them. What do you think the, what do you, well, two questions. What do you think, yeah, about this solution? It's definitely contrary to what her first, what, what she said she was going to do. But also, what do you think about, like, uh, what did what does this caribou represent in this episode? So, so I think that there is a discussion of like man versus nature going on here because a lot of them are going up against a seasonal associated disorder right there caused by the lack of sunlight. Um, there's like a winter storm that's trapping Joe and Maggie. The, the caribou themselves are products of nature. They live out in the wilderness, and that itself also impedes Edna in her quest to get to point A to point B. So I think that there is that angle to look on. I I, I think that like another way of looking at it is like the it's it, on a surface level, it's another byproduct of the sunlight. It's affecting the wilderness's uh, brainwaves, their wavelength, mm. and they're you know things aren't natural. They aren't the way that they're supposed to be to the point that even the wilderness is acting up. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, this is such a great connecting thread for all the plot lines, but I mean, it's not cheap. You got to get a lot. You have to have a reason. I think if you're writing this, um, I'm sure like they might say in the writing room, okay, we got to cut the caribou. That's going to be too expensive. But the writers might be like, okay, here's the, like, this is why we need a pack of caribou. Um, and yeah, I think I agree with you. I think it's sort of this um, representation of nature. To me, it's just a bigger physical embodiment of this idea of the obstacle of winter. Like we definitely, we see snow, we hear wind, but with caribou, you can't miss it. They're like all up in your business. And this is a great way of showing how this winter, interminable winter is... Um, really in the way of a lot of things, especially for Edna. And um, yeah, we're trying now, I guess Edna's trying now to, um, I don't know how you would 
exact, there's probably many ways to read into this, but I just found it was interesting that she doesn't try to scare them away. She instead does this sort of, um, this trick of luring them. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you would, um, figure that, but I like it. Yeah. I, I think that is a very interesting observation where you said that this would have been a very costly operation for them to do. Mm-hmm. This would have immediately been the first thing to cut if it was like a budget reason. Mm-hmm. They would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's way too much. So you're right that there, there's got to be some sort of reasoning behind this, whether it's literal or subtextual. I guess you you could also argue it's like, come on, this is northern exposure. We need like some moose. We need some caribou. Like, you know, that could be her <laughs> argument. And they yeah, might that buy is true. it, you know, because people love... Love the moose. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, speaking of something in the way, we see that with Walt in his intervention. So we have Chris Halling and do we this know guy? Him? Yeah, he, they don't say his name in this episode, but we have seen him before. I went back and looked at it. Uh, his name is Owen in previous episodes. I think he's also he's in a, quite a few episodes before this, but most recently he's been playing this character named Owen. Oh, okay. So Owen will be the third one to join them in this intervention. <laughs> uh, Walt's like got a crippling dependence on this visor. And I don't know if it was like a slow incremental thing, but the more and more we see Walt on the screen with that visor, the more like creepier or unsettling <laughs> yeah. that visor is. Like the it's lighting true. of it, it's no longer this warm, yellow, friendly light. It's this very sterile, harsh, fluorescent white yeah just a harsh glare that's appearing on his brow i almost wonder too if um part of it is his performance like you know walt has some sort of droopy eyelids um but we see maybe later in the episode but we see throughout the episode he's got his eyes wide open in some of these shots maybe it does maybe he opens them more and more as the episode goes on but that's pretty stark and creepy to look at uh, so th- that could be a part of it as well. <laughs> yeah. And they talk to him about the various ways in which he is not himself. And it's not being caused by the season. It's being caused by that visor. Uh, they kind of have to force the truth onto him. And that's where Walt reveals the truth, which is that like this visor makes him feel the way he felt Back when he had a lot more life in it, it made him feel alive because Mm -hmm. back then he used to work on Wall Street and he used to chase this high of trying to close sales and trying to, you know, live this adrenaline junkie lifestyle. But even back then, his doctor tells him, like, this is too much. You're trying to live too much. Yeah. And that's what sent him off into Alaska. Reminds me of a... That episode with Ruth Ann's son, Matthew, who's like a banker or something like that, Wall Street maybe. Um, And he, you know, takes some time off with his uh, mom and starts to maybe consider doing like a fly fishing lure business. But, you know, secretly he continues his same practices of trading stock or whatever. Uh, I don't think he ever really overcomes that. He does return to his status quo. I think he goes back home. But... Um, just reminded me of that. And, uh, you know, the last time Walt was confronted in this episode by Holling, we see the positive effects. Um, that's all that, that Walt can talk about. But here when they are giving the intervention, they do list a few negative effects that have been happening. Like, um, 
I think Walt had forgot to show some pelts to a customer. Like there was someone waiting for him for two hours and Walt just never showed up. Um, Walt was like, no, I was busy repairing a carburetor. And someone else saw Walt chopping wood without gloves while it's 20 degrees below, freezing outside. Hauling's like, you know, you got to wear proper protective clothing. Like you, that can kill you if you don't do that. Like, what are you thinking? Um, they cite some actual examples of like how this is bad. And you're right. Yeah. Walt relates it to um, his sort of addiction he had on Wall Street. And uh, I think... Um, it's a pretty sad ending that we get after this, but it's it's a good... I like the ending, but um, for, for this storyline with Walt. Yeah, so the very last time that we see Walt is going to be in Fleischman's office. He's having a talk with Marilyn, but this time they have, uh, they have like this supervision of his use of time, of uh, how he can use his visor. So he's wearing the visor for, I don't know, I think it's like 20 minutes or something like that. He says um, 15 minutes yet. And oh, um, that, there we go. So there's kind of a pause. And then Mar- Marilyn's like, all right, 15 minutes over. And she takes it back. Yeah. And it's like much more uh, just controlled. Mm-hmm. She she keeps it under lock and key. Like she literally puts it in the drawer and locks the drawer. Yeah. Uh, and then Walt like walks out defeated. There, yeah. there is no like happy spin to it. It's not like Walt comes to a realization, uh, some sort of like deeper epiphany. Uh, he, he ends the episode by... You know, he comes in from the dark and he leaves out in the dark. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, it almost seems like he might be just as crushed as he was uh, before he got the visor. But I was thinking about that and I was like, you know, it's very, it's very sad ending. Like, what, what is this supposed to mean? For me, my takeaway from that ending is the seasonal thing, this winter is not supposed to be easy. Like, it is hard and you can work through it, but it's going to be bit by bit. Like, you get 15 minutes at a time. Uh, it's it's not just something where you can zonk out on your visor and get through the winter. You're going to have to struggle with it. Yeah, that is a great take. I really like that. There's an incrementalism attitude right there that you're saying that, you know, you can't wholly rely on one device. And, you know, at the end, that thing is simulated light. It's not real light. Mm-hmm. So... Right. Just relying on that obviously cannot be a substitute for the real thing. And I think we can tie this with um, Edna uh, in The Caribou because um, the very last scene we get with her, this is after she's kind of lured them away with all that hay and feed. We see Edna exiting her house, going to her car, and the caribou are there. They're they're at her house again. So, you know, what's going on? She, She just can't beat it. You know, the caribou, it's pretty... Again, a, a very quiet and still scene because we just get a shot of the caribou looking at her and then a shot of Edna just kind of staring at them. She doesn't react the same way she did at the start of the episode. Like she's not swearing at them or like honking or cursing, get out of the way. Uh, it's a failure, I think. Um, it's not, again, it's not a happy ending. Like she failed in her mission, but I think she just, uh, for her for her lesson here is just like, she learned to accept it or she learned that no matter how hard she wants to try, nature's going to follow its own rules. Like she can't really, can't really do anything about it. Right. I think that's a good way to encapsulate her own plot line right there. I feel like the other two plot lines, they're not like completely void of what's happening on here, but I feel like they kind of 
a little bit more belong to each other. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's go into them. Let's talk about Ruth Ann and Shelley. Yeah. So let's rewind back to the beginning of the episode where we're having Ruth Ann also wear the visor. She's in her store and she's trying to pick up on Italian. She's trying to <laughs> learn it so that she can read Dante Alighieri's The Divine Comedy in its original language. Uh, I know that you know this yeah. because we had the same English teacher. but Previous guest on the podcast. Yes, Ms. McFarland. <laughs> uh, she told us this fact. I always thought it was super fascinating. The reason that Dante wrote the Inferno in Italian is because he wanted everyone to be able to read it. He wanted to mm-hmm. make sure that his skating words were available to everyone and it wasn't like to like latin or something is what you're saying yeah Yeah. like the latin which was like you know the higher echelon of society was you know reading from there he also was the reason that like his one standardized version of italian spread across italy so he Mm. primarily used a tucson dialect which would become the standard literary italian so that kind of like unified and forged everything into one universal thing. So like everybody can kind of get together on the same page, which is yeah. kind of useful. And, you know, it worked out in his end too, because he wanted everyone <laughs> to be able to read what the, you know, right. kind of stuff he was talking about. Popularizes his work for sure. Yeah. yeah. For those of you who don't know, the Inferno is basically, even like write in real people. Like yeah. he just did not like them. He was just like, oh, screw this guy. He's in hell write you on into. this level. Yeah, he's like in the fifth level of hell. I've put this real life person in my book. <laughs> um, that's funny though that, you know, he wrote it in Italian to have a wider audience. And now today, or at least in this episode with Ruthann, I think I think a lot of people are like Ruthann where they want to learn Italian so they can read the original Dante. Is there, um, is there any book like that or I mean, well Charles I know you you kind of do you would you say you speak another language or at least part partly? I definitely can't read it I'll talk you, you read that it. much okay, well, absolutely yeah. cannot read it because reading Chinese and speaking Chinese are two different things mm-hmm. uh, like I'm sure you know this but like Asian languages rely on characters now Korean has an alphabet but in Chinese they don't so literally every single word is its own thing so like you, a drawing you know, or something yeah, yeah. so you, you gotta memorize every single character to uh to know the words to, to read it and understand it now you don't need to do that for speaking because obviously you're it's a you know you don't have to visualize it so yeah i can't read chinese but i can somewhat understand it like i can speak it but here's where it gets really complicated <laughs> because in chinese it is standardized underneath like two quote-unquote main ones mandarin and cantonese the big thing about this is that like a lot of people don't realize this but Oftentimes people will ask and they'll be like, oh, do you speak Mandarin or Cantonese? Those are so like kind of wildly different. That's kind of like going yeah. up to someone and being like, hey, do you speak French or German? I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> like those are two, uh, they're, they're very different. So uh, just within Mandarin, there is like a whole subsection of dialects of which one will make zero sense to another one right there. Uh, they are standardized underneath Mandarin, but like once you get into the dialects, um, yeah. Sichuan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, it doesn't matter. All those, you you just can't understand it. It's <laughs> vastly different. Yeah, vastly different right there. So yeah, I do speak Mandarin Chinese, but I can't even, I can't even understand read Taiwanese. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about this, like I've always, I've, I know a little bit of Spanish and some French, you know, pretty decently. And I was trying to think like, is there a book that I would want? I think, 
I don't remember why, but a, a while ago, I like a, a long time ago, I was like, oh yeah, if I ever learned Spanish, I could read Don Quixote by I was going to say that one. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know that's, de la Mancha. that's one that's like, um, you know, you got to read it in the original Spanish or something. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have any any works like that? No. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> like, not. It's I'm hard okay. I don't to read the language. It's hard enough to read it in read English. The translation, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I also, I don't mind. There are some pretty good translations I feel like that I've read for like Greek mythology, obviously. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Even just reading normal sentences in another language can sound kind of poetic because I don't know. It's just like it uses a different part of your brain and it's like, oh, this is such a clever way of saying it, but it's just because like in English, we form our sentences a little differently than other languages. Every language might be different. So it's just a new way of approaching this idea that you want to write, but you structure it in a different way and you use words that might sound more interesting, I guess, um, not just the plain Jane English that you're used to. I don't know. Um, so anything yeah. could sound good, good to me. No, I, I totally get what you mean. Like I know that uh, particularly for like Japanese, mm-hmm. they don't structure it in the same way that most of the other languages do, which is going to be um, like a verb, adjective, noun type of thing. Mm-hmm. So like you would say like, I went to the store. And if you said that in Japanese, the store is going to be first mm-hmm. and then went and then I, it's flipped. Right. But in their language, it makes complete sense. But when you're hearing it, you're, you're having a process and your brain is already so used to like that particular structure of how the noun and the verb is going to be at this particular way that yeah. when you see it in Japanese is going to be much, much more different. Um, thankfully, Chinese doesn't follow that. Chinese is more like English. And it's in, in this, in this, in this, yeah, in that formatting of ways. Mm. So that makes a lot more sense. I don't think that kind of plays into uh, like comedy of sorts where it's all dealing with punchlines and oh. timing. Cause when you listen to it in Japanese and you hear certain words first and then it goes to the other one, but you're reading the subtitles and it's not catching up along at the same oh, yeah. moment. <laughs> it it kind of has like a dislocation between there. Right. Um, but I always think that like, that's kind of interesting. And I agree with you that certain languages sound really beautiful in its own thing. They have nuance to it that the English language simply doesn't have. But I, <laughs> I, I, I just couldn't, you couldn't I can't pull yeah. Pete Buttigieg. Can't, What's that? Because I, I believe... Did he learn a lot of languages? I believe or he learned several languages okay. just to read a book. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, you're much like Ruth Ann then, because she's she wants to hear that Italian, and I mean, she definitely would love to understand it. But I think, okay, really jumping ahead here on this plot line, but she definitely struggles with learning Italian. Uh, the first scene we get with her is, as you're saying, she's learning Italian by tape. She wants to read the Divide and Comedy. Sorry, you already covered this. Shelley is in the store. And she just has this preternatural knack for Italian because she is hearing the sort of, you know, the, the way the tape is formatted is sort of call and response. Like the tape will say something and you're supposed to respond in the translation. And Shelley is kind of like translating on the spot into Italian. And um, yeah, I think that's all that happens in that scene. It's just supposed to be like a little bit of a curious moment. Like we don't really understand why Shelley is so good at this. We just kind of see Ruth Ann watching Shelley and kind of being amused. Right. Oh, we can include this if you want to, but I just wanted to say this before I forgot. <laughs> uh, before we get off of this topic, I do remember there is a line in Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip where 
these two characters, Matt and Danny, are talking, and Matt is telling Danny, he's like, hey, do you remember Andy? And he was like, yeah, kind of. I remember him being like a very serious fella. Um, what's he doing now? He's like, uh, he was putting on a play in this theater of Look Back and Anger in Dutch. And then um, Danny replies back, Look Back and Anger was written in English. Why, why would he do that? And Matt says like, I don't know. I guess it was like some sort of writing exercise, I guess, to turn it into Dutch. And Danny <laughs> says, yeah, because the soaring rhetoric and uh, tit tat of, you know, Osborne's play surely will fly in Dutch. Like that's going to make it hilarious. <laughs> I guess Dutch is more like harsh sounding, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But I always think that's such a funny thing it, in both ways. Like the lines are themselves are funny, mm-hmm. but also the idea of like, why would you translate it into Dutch? That's a super serious play. And it's even like, look back in anger. Oh, because Dutch maybe sounds a little silly sounding. <laughs> I guess, I maybe. But look back in anger is predominantly like, it pertains to England, which yeah. is where English is spoken. <laughs> it deals with like the working class after World War II. So to translate it into Dutch is like, uh, it's kind of strange. But yeah, anyway, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of like Tolkien. Uh creating all these languages. And I mean, I think he was just fascinated by translations too. I think he was, he did a lot of translations himself, but um, just making up random languages. And I found this out recently and I read like Lord of the Rings, but uh, did you know that Frodo's name isn't actually Frodo? What's his name? Frodo, Frodo is like, so let's say that the normal speech in Middle Earth is like common or whatever. I, I don't know what they call it, but the normal speech Frodo is a translation of his like hobbit name into the common speech. His his real hobbit name in that language is Mara Labingi. It's not even close. Yeah, it's not even close. At all. <laughs> it's not even close to Frodo, Frodo. Baggins Mara, Mara Labingi. Like <laughs> <laughs> and all the hobbits have other names too. Like this, it's all translated from. That's crazy. Like, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. We're going on a tangent yeah, here, is, but like really nothing. quickly, um, in Chinese, if they want to translate a word from English, what they'll do is, because like I said previously, there's no alphabet. So you have to have these characters to align with them, but you, you're just finding like the closest characters that you can to, cobble together the English sounding word. So uh, like a Ferrari, for example, that didn't exist back mm-hmm. in, you know, 10th century China. That's a right. new invention. So whenever they had to create the character for Ferrari, they kind of found like the closest words they could that kind of sounded like Ferrari, but not exactly. But it also conveyed like the speed and the coolness of a Ferrari. I think it's like Ferrari. I think that's <laughs> how you say it. Um, I'm not entirely too sure. I probably butchered it. But yeah, that in Chinese roughly translates to like super fast, cool. Mm-hmm. And like that's how they say Ferrari. Like that's how they straight up translated it. <laughs> so it fulfills two criteria. It kind of sounds like the original thing. And it takes on similar meaning to them. Yeah. Uh, whenever I was in Houston and I was going through Chinatown, uh, I was with my mother at the time and she was looking at the street signs that they had put up because previously they didn't have that. They didn't have a street sign of English and Chinese. Hmm. And she was looking at the Chinese ones and she was saying like, oh, they did a really good job on that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And like, oh, they like kind of like they took the English name of the road 
And they tried to do the best they could to translate into Chinese. So like one road would be called like Bel Air and maybe it would translate into like long fortunate road because that's where like a lot of business were. Mm. <laughs> and, it, and it still sounded like Bel Air. That's awesome. So like, yeah, it, it takes a lot of creativity for them to think, to be like, right. all right, what are we, what are we turning this word into? Yeah. Now in this, this Frodo <laughs> example, it's not even close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're trying to get close there. That's weird. Um, all right. Well, okay. Back to Italian, Dante. Yeah. Lots of Italian, you know, aspects to this episode, not just in, not just in um, Ruthann's storyline. I think there's some crossover to Joel and Maggie. But with Ruthann, she's in the brick now. Shelly whipping up some food and stuff. And uh, Shelly, again, is kind of chiming into Ruthann's um, Italian practice. And we learn here that um, Shelly knows Italian because in high school, one of her boyfriend's parents, um, Mama and Papa Innocenzi, she says, they only spoke Italian. So she really hit it off with them and she learned a lot from them. She speaks fluently. She's really good at this. Um, so she learned it. Uh, she, apparently she also learned Spanish the same way, she said. But yeah, that's very impressive. I, I think it's funny that Ruthann's like, oh, wow, you're so good at this. You know, somehow I didn't picture you as the studious type. I mean, I don't think anyone, that's like not <laughs> at all Shelly's character, but it's, I guess it's a nice way of putting it. Right. <laughs> she says that she was in the kitchen scarfing biscotti and speaking <laughs> Itai. I don't know if you know this. Do you know that biscotti, that's the plural, that's the plural. form? Yeah. Yeah. Biscotto, Biscotto is the singular Isn't one. there a great, uh, what's the guy's name that's Conan's? Uh, uh, Jordan Schlansky. Yeah. Jordan Schlansky has a great... I don't know. I don't even know if you can even call it a bit. I'm sure the character is a bit, but he's totally dry with it. And he's like very serious about biscotto. <laughs> he's like correcting yeah. Colin. Conan's like, Conan. hand me the biscotti. He's like, it's one, it's biscotto. <laughs> <laughs> and Conan just can't believe this man is like so serious. Jordan, hey, Conan O'Brien here. First of all, your office is a mess, okay? This is disgusting. Have you been on hoarders yet? Uh, you have an espresso machine here. There is an espresso machine here. What's the difference between what you said and I don't and have I it. Pardon I me? Don't, I don't have it. It's here. Doesn't mean I have it. What do you mean? I don't understand. I use it, but I don't have it. Have it implies that I own it. I don't own it. Oh, you don't own it? No, I don't own it. Who purchased the machine? You actually own it. You purchased everything in this office. I did? Yes. Did I buy you this Italian almond biscotti? No, that was free. This is a free biscotti? Yes, biscotto. Pardon me? It's a biscotto. Biscotti? That would be if there was more than one. There's only one. <laughs> great, great character there. But um, yeah, we got a study buddy pairing here because Ruth Ann says, hey, would you help me like practice? This tape is like can be pretty boring. So it'd be really nice to practice with someone who actually can like speak it. And it's like a real living character. Right. And the next scene, we're going to see them in Ruthann's home. Oh, wait. I think this is in, I think this is in um, Shelly's home. I oh, think, this is Shelly's home? I think we see the, I could be wrong, but I do know that whatever the exterior shot is, we get right before this, the caribou are there. So it's another link with the caribou. Oh. So could be Ruthann's house, could be the break, but we got the caribou following them there. Okay. Uh, what they're learning from is like this little, uh, it's a, like book of sorts. It's one of those things that you see in like back when we still had them, like travel agencies. Yeah. Like learn how to speak Italian or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to learn and Shelly's rattling it off to Ruthann. Uh, Ruthann is having great difficulty 
catching up and comprehending what Shelly is saying. But then Shelly realizes, like, wait a second, there's like six pages missing from this. This is unheard of. This is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, she gets on the line and calls them, which I don't know how she did that. Because that is a that, that long is a long distance, distance call. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, she actually brings up the point. Uh, Ruth Ann's like, well, aren't they like based out of Milan? And uh, Shelly's like, yeah, they're probably waking up right now. I'm sure that the cost of, um, well, I mean, she's, so she calls up the company and like is basically in Italian very fluently sort of complaining to this customer service and they're going to send like a new course book or whatever. So, you know, she gets a, another course book for free, but I, I bet the cost of that long distance call, I didn't even think about that, might might even exceed the cost of another book too. I don't know. Oh no, it's super expensive. Like <laughs> from the way my parents used to do it was that, okay, this is super archaic. And I think you kind of still have to do this if your phone isn't equipped for long distance calls. They had to go to like the local gas station. And at that gas station, you can buy these cards, right. like credit cards. Yeah. And they're long distance. They're filled up with like a certain amount of minutes. And then you dial this number. And from that number, you tell them the code on that card. Right. And that's what allows you to go and dial into the long distance number because their numbers aren't like our nine digit numbers with the first three being the area code. Theirs are, theirs are like entirely different things. Right, like yeah, if you type in format. their number right now, it, it leads to nowhere. You get that <laughs> boo-doo dee sound. Right. You know anything about phone freaking? Uh, why is that so familiar to me? It's just well, like, what is a, that? I'm, this is maybe I'm, I'm assuming that Shelly is like a hacker who can like, you know, it's, it was a way of, um, tricking this is it obviously can't work anymore but like tricking the phone system into um basically giving you a free um you could you could dial long distance calls for free and it's like has something to do with like the way the phones um received like numbers and codes like when you press the number on say you press number four on your phone it would literally send four beeps like blah, 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 like four so just really fast and so that's how it, it the phone is listening to the sounds of these blips and it's turning that into, okay, this is the number four, three, like whatever the phone number is. But phone freaking is like, you could play a certain tone and it would override. It would just give you like free access to call. I don't, I, I'm probably giving a what? bad example of this, but it really was pretty simple. You just get like a box that has this pre-recorded tone or maybe um, this co audio code. You play it into the phone and then you could call long distance for free. Damn. So, um, but I mean, obviously they ended that the way that those phone lines are worked in the past, obviously doesn't work like that anymore. People were getting away, uh, with a lot of that back in the day, but I think that was like early hackers, you know, back in the day, mm. I find that really fascinating, but no, maybe, that's super um, interesting. maybe she's got like a, one of those, uh, I think they called it like a black box or like a blue box or something. She's got like a, she's got something hooked up to her phone where she can, uh, she can hack into long distance. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, all this all this kind of amounts to is um, something I wasn't fully understanding. Mean, I guess I get it, but I was kind of confused. Is like, what's up with Ruth Ann? Because her response to Shelley being like so fluent and so good at Italian, it's almost like Ruth Ann's kind of like upset and like uh, in a downer mood from this. I guess we we find out later. Maybe there's a tad bit of jealousy or just like Ruthann might even just be frustrated with herself that she's like, I, why can't I be this good? Yeah, uh, I think it's both. And we're going to we're going to see this in the next scene. Uh, I'll talk about it here where okay. 
Ruthann is still going through her Italian book uh, with the tape recorder. She's still trying to learn Italian. And Shelly's kind of goofing off uh, with her child. She's in the produce section. And Ruthann tells her off. She's like, oh, you know, that's this is a place of business. You know, you got to buy your things and get out, basically. And Shelly yeah. doesn't really take offense to that. She's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. And Ruthann continues trying to learn Italian. I think the reason that she's very miffed is because... Shelly knows Italian and she tried to read the Divine Comedy, but to her, she finds it really boring. She's right. like, this isn't for me. This isn't up my alley. But to Ruthann, she's saying like, you're throwing away this gift because this is such an esteemed novel. Right. And yet you're not even utilizing this gift. But in the end, it's much more better for Shelly to focus on her own personal preferences. Right. Like, yeah, she has this potential, but that doesn't mean she should have to be uh, folded into this one particular angle. She has mm-hmm. to follow this one path. If she doesn't like um, the Inferno, then that's fine. Yeah. She may not like reading Dante's Inferno, but she really liked communicating with other Italians and like those, the parents, uh, Incinza, Incinza, whatever, sorry, their names were. You know, that was really important to her and it definitely stuck with her. So I feel like, you know, she is, you know, every person's different, but I feel like she definitely is getting good use out of her Italian or maybe not now, but, you know, she, she knows how she wants to use Italian and it's not to read for herself. Uh, We do see later she is still reading to Ruthann, which is nice, but, um, but just talking again about Ruthann, the next scene is uh, she goes to find Chris to, um, to maybe get his perspective and some guidance from him. She She's talking to him in the K-Bear booth and she's like, basically says, I feel terrible. I like that Chris says, well, let's get out of this fishbowl, huh? And they like step out of the um, the glass booth and sit in the office of K-Bear and basically Ruthann is kind of what you're kind of saying, Charles. Ruthann is basically saying like, it's not that youth is wasted on the young. It's that Italian is wasted on Shelly. Like she's, she has this gift that she's just not using properly. And, um, I got a little soundbite. This is Chris relating this scenario to Antonio Salieri. Antonio Salieri. Amadeus. Salieri was the court composer in Mozart's day, right? Very big, huge, top of the charts. He knew his stuff was dog meat compared to Mozart's. It just drove him nuts. He couldn't figure out why... The good Lord up above would give the gift of genius to this little brat instead of him. Couldn't handle it. But Chris, Salieri killed Mozart. Right. That old green-eyed monster. So yeah, I guess Chris's, you know, guidance here or solution here is like, maybe you're taking this uh, jealousy too far. Like this is jealousy within you. I don't really know how this helps, but just, I guess, helps Ruthann maybe recognize uh, at least some of these, it's not like a solution, but it helps Ruthann recognize the feelings that she's going through and like why this might be happening. Uh, It doesn't help necessarily, but it's, I guess it helps for her own like perspective and like understanding what she's going through. Yeah, we see this in the last scene where she's kind of reconciled with Shelly, mostly with herself, and she's having Shelly read to her. And we get this really interesting directorial decision where we get a lateral tracking shot mm-hmm. where the camera's steady and it moves from right to left, pans from Ruth Ann all the way over to the window. Yeah. And I think it's really curious because 
the way the episode started was that we panned inward when Joel right. woke up from his dream toward the window. And in this particular shot, we have the lateral tracking shot where it moves from right to left toward the window. Now, yeah. I don't like, I don't think there's like a particularly huge subtext behind the decision. I know there's subtext behind using a lateral tracking shot, but I don't think there's one between like a juxtaposition between the um, Joel's usage of it and Ruth Ann's usage of it. I, I think the more important thing is that it's going toward a window. Yeah, I think it's just a nice little bookend to kind of like begin and end in these ways. And kind of what you said, it's like we are, you know, at the beginning, we're retreating maybe inward. Um, and towards the end, we can have hope of retreating outward or, you know, going outward now um, with this ending. I liked the the camera movement there that you're describing Um it begins with like Ruth Ann. She's listening to Shelley Reed and she turns and looks out the window as if like something is out there catching her eye. Um, and it's like the night and the snow, but it like kind of fades and transports us to a bunch of like um, stock footage of like Venice and paintings and art and these aerial shots with this sort of uh, operatic Italian music, um, opera music happening. Um it feels corny because it is, to me, it feels a little corny because of like the stock footage aspect of it. And it is uh, visually on the Blu-ray there, you can see when they're about to go into um, some sort of like special effects process, it it takes the, um, the, the image quality, sort of it goes down more to like video than film, than like a restored film. Um, so I don't know. I just kind of been burned by a couple of endings uh, from Northern Exposure that feel like this. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I like this one isn't terrible. It's not that as bad as like some of the other ones. That, it, gets, it reminds me of some like really bad, like the birds of a feather one for me. Yeah, it gets like a little bit of a pass because we began with a dream that yeah. wasn't in their world and yeah. we end with not, also not in their world right there. Yeah. Uh, but in a way, they could have just ended with that lateral tracking shot where it just goes from right to left. I think that would have been a, an yeah. appropriate ending right there. I think you, I think you told me this before once, where you're like, when in doubt, just fade. Just like that's like the best it's way like, to transition. Uh, if you can't solve it, dissolve it. Yeah, there we go. It's like if you can't naturally find the cut, you're just like, <laughs> yeah, just dissolve. Like your eyes will, you know, <laughs> yeah, you you understand as a film language. It's better than having like a drawing cut. Just like dissolve it most of the time. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so, well, you know, that's a, that's a pretty content ending. And while we're not out of the darkness yet, it maybe suggests that we're going to uh, make it to the other side. We can imagine uh, what it's like out there by, you know, invoking the divine comedy and transporting ourselves uh, to a better place, perhaps just as, as you're saying in the beginning of the episode, Joel is transporting himself with his, you know, subconscious in his dreams. Um, but maybe let's reel it back to the beginning and talk about Joel and Maggie here. Right. So the scene that's going to be with Joel and Maggie is them trying to get to the airport. Um, we get an exterior shot of, of like a red shack of sorts. Um, mm -hmm. If you look closely on the sign on top of the door, it says Sicily International Airport. <laughs> yeah. The key thing to note in this scene is that it's just one source of light. It looks mm. really lonely. It's a lonely shack with a lonely light right there. Yeah. That's funny that, of course, the Sicily Airport, Sicily International Airport, is just like a small, like a shack. You can't even really call that a, a building. Um, 
And yeah, it does feel very remote, isolated, lonely. I like that way you you commented on the lighting there. Uh, but they go in and Joel is very eager. I think uh, in that last scene with Walt that he was in, when he's like giving the visor to Walt, he's like, ooh, I'm on my way to Juno. I'm excited for this conference. Now we see him uh, still very eager despite this crazy storm that we hear about from Chris. Despite the storm, he wants to go and Maggie's like, what is up with you? Like normally on a, on a normal day, you're freaking out about flying. Now you can't wait to hop into the cockpit and like, look, I got to call. I got to call over the radio and make sure this is okay. And it seems like, uh, yeah, it seems like a no-go. It's a bust. Yeah. Maggie even comments is like, you're saying the fly against like around the storm. It's a storm. <laughs> oh, yeah. As if to say like works. you, you can't beat nature. Like yeah. it's going to be there. That's true. That's very true. It's like, yeah, there's no way around that. I think as we learn earlier about the caribou, you know, at the end of the episode and just about the, the darkness and struggling, there's no way around the storm. But she does compromise with them, though. She says like, all right, well, we'll wait. We'll wait like three more hours. Yeah. And if it doesn't clear up, then we got to call it. And Joel's like, all right, that's fair. Yeah. I think that's fine. We can tell that Joel is pretty upset. So Maggie gives him the, the extra hours. Like, let's see what happens. Uh, of course, though, when we cut back to this scene, uh, the storm only got worse. Like she calls up on the radio and it's not any better. It's worse. So, um, you know, Joel defeated. Maggie says, you know, let me let me buy you a beer. Let's go to the brick. Um, here, I'll, I'll play the soundbite. I like this little this little exchange. <sighs> Sorry, Flashman. Hey, how about I buy you a beer? Huh? Yeah. That's just what I need, another beer at the brick. Another day listening to Maurice spew on about some mate that got away, or, or Chris theorize about you know, what would have happened if, if Wittgenstein had, had met Isidore Duncan in Vienna, as if anybody cares. I think that's a, a great little bit of writing, but I also I just wanted to point it out because um, one of our listeners wrote in, you know, talking about this episode, but specifically also this line how, you know, that sounds, I guess to any fan of Northern Exposure would be like, yeah, I want that. That's where I want to be right now. <laughs> to Joel, I mean, we we got, we can like understand maybe where he's coming from because he's been trapped there. But, um, you know, endless, it's always the same, I guess, for, for Joel, like nothing changes. But uh, I don't know, for some people in the audience, we might just be like, hey, I love the, I love the constancy of that. You know, <laughs> I love these characters. Right. And that's going to be playing into the episode as we see, like Joel is, he, he's tired of living in this like one, um, in this one season, this perpetual mm -hmm. winter, which is perpetual dialogue with Chris <laughs> and Maurice and all of their uh, pontificating and complaining <laughs> right there. But yeah, they get to the car and unfortunately, because they waited so long, that's mm -hmm. what allowed the storm to really build up. Uh, presumably, like it did something to the car internally. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think they call it start. flooding. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. like, well, he says like, I didn't flood it. I didn't flood it. I think he says that like a couple times, but uh, whatever happened, it's just not going to, it's not starting now. Right. And that gets them stuck. So they return back into the shack. Yes. We're beginning the bottle portion that we're talking about, if we can call it that, but whatever, uh, they, they get on the radio again and now they're, they're hailing, um, hauling on the radio. And uh, Holling's like, well, you know, the storm's really kicked up a lot. Is an emergency out there? Joel is adamant that this is an emergency, but Maggie swipes away the mic and she's like, no, we're fine. No emergency. Because, you know, her perspective, like she's got a point, like 
they're going to be okay in this shack. Like it's not going to blow away. It won't, you know, they won't freeze to death here. They could totally survive here for the night. But if someone's supposed to go out there and drive towards them, that could be very, very dangerous. Um, so, you know, even if someone got there to pick them up, they're probably not getting back safely. And it's just endangering the driver, also endangering their lives, even if someone could make it there, you know? Right. Uh, Maggie kind of tells them to go get some wood, you know, <laughs> just to help them out right there because they're going to have to stay through the night. All right. Yeah. But, you know, it turns out that like there's providence because that place is stocked. Yes. Uh, Maurice had made sure to put like a lot of great stuff into there. Oysters and wine. Yeah. Uh, a very Maurice thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At first we like, we just see like Maggie opens up this, uh, crate maybe she's like oh i think i found some dinner and it, as you're saying yeah she's got canned oysters maggie freaking loves canned oysters i think like she's the person anytime <laughs> that there's canned oysters in an episode it's a line that she says like she's talking about them um <laughs> but uh yeah we find that some wine and then it's like oh of course this is maurice uh she finds a letter Apparently, I think it was back in 1991, she says, Maurice had a similar situation with his snowgo, like broke down. He had to crash here for the night. So he's paying it forward for the next person. Because uh, I guess, you know, there were probably some provisions there that when Maurice was stuck back there. So he just wanted to pay it forward. Some really nice wine, it turns out, as Joel says, um, Le Bon Pasteur, which is a pretty good Pomerol, he says. It's no Petrus, but this is highly drinkable stuff. So I love this uh, sort of impromptu uh, surprise, and it's going to turn into a dinner date because what do they got? Like olive oil, garlic powder, canned tuna. Maggie suggests some linguine alla pescatore marinara, which uh, I'm pretty sure is sort of like a pasta with a red sauce. Um, pescatore meaning like using some seafood. I don't know. I've never had, I, I bet I've had like some red, red sauce pasta with seafood, but with canned tuna, I, I don't know if I like that idea. Also, um, I, I'm guessing they have canned tomatoes, but that's not something they list off when they're, uh, pulling out of the crate, but they're going to try to make a red sauce somehow. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? That this dish that they're concocting? <laughs> Uh, I think that's really interesting that they're bringing Italy into Sicily. Yeah, so, that is very cool. Uh, Ruthann is trying to read about Italy. And it's not like she's trying to actively go to that country. More of like an escape. It's like a mental escape, maybe? Yeah, I guess so. At least like, the I ending guess in a of the way, episode, it suggests right, like an escape. You can construe it in that manner. But in this particular case, uh, Maggie and Joel kind of bring Italy to their lives. Yeah. So it's kind of like a state of mind in that like, what I perceive to be uh, idyllic rolling hills of Tucson, it can yeah. be conjured through the company of people that I care about. So they're using this food as a way to express that, in my opinion. And we can see that they have like a wonderful time with it. Uh, Joel opens up. He yeah. talks about how like, oh, this, this snow days reminded me of when I was a child. <laughs> yeah. And I would wait with a bated breath, which is also like, it's a good line. It's not a natural line, but I still really like it. You, you almost <laughs> never say the word abated in real life. That's like such a, it's just one of those words that you read and you never hear. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I'm not faulting them at all. I, I think like it's fun to use it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I don't think I would say that. Uh, I waited with bated breath, you know, like, yeah, you read uh, as a description, but. 
I, it I works. It. it works in the episode, yeah. <laughs> and Joel talks about like how he would wait until they called it out. On the radio, like call, calling like school is canceled. Right. Uh, it's a emotionally intimate. It's not like super vulnerable, but it like it sheds more Nostalgic, light into yeah. him. Yeah. And that's like the type of character that Maggie really likes. Mm-hmm. And that's what prompts her to be like, well, okay, well with that, that makes me want to kiss you. <laughs> and so they have like a very sweet moment, uh, a sweet tender moment with each other. Yeah. It's very, very nice. And I, yeah, I just, I think I know why I love this, this idea here when they're kind of snowed in one, we're like in a safe, cozy environment close together. It's very intimate, but also like they're, I like what you're saying, Charles, how they're bringing Italy to them. It's sort of like role-playing as if like, yeah, we're going to have like this romantic dinner, even though we're in a shack and it's canned tuna, but you know, it's using your imagination and it just seems fun. And it's, uh, um, it's just a fun, I don't know how else to describe it, but like having that perspective from role-playing this dream idea of like, oh, we're going to have this great dinner date and they're on board with it. It, it seems it seems like they're going to have a lot of fun. Um, Charles, I wanted to also talk about, do you remember any, okay, we're from Louisiana, so we didn't, we don't really get snow days, but uh, there was a, like, uh, I don't know if you could call it a blizzard, but like an ice storm in 1997 in our, in our hometown of Lake Charles. Do you remember, do you remember the ice storm or were you... Well, you're probably, you're just one year younger than me, so. No, I like, okay, so like I have a weird, okay, it's not a weird relationship, mm-hmm. but like I know of this ice storm's existence because my parents would say so. They would mm-hmm. say like, oh, there was an ice storm in 97. And in my mind, I, I, I always thought of it this way, where I thought it was such a like, that's such an alien concept right. to me yes. that Louisiana would have ice, yet I did not see it formally with my own eyes. I was too young to remember it. So whenever they always said that, they would always say like, oh, there was a snowstorm in 97. I always yeah, I pictured space in my mind, <laughs> yeah. like some sort of satellite yeah, in my brain. Yeah. I don't know why that's the image that always got conjured. But to me, it was super alien that this could even happen. Yeah. And yet it was referenced so much with my parents because whenever, you know, I was a child, I would always ask. I'd be like, oh, why doesn't it snow? Like, why, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then they would always reference that storm. I remember it when I was a kid. I mean, obviously we got the, the day off of school. And yeah, I do remember... When it happened being like, oh, this is like, this doesn't happen here in Louisiana. We're getting like some crazy ice. Um, but for some reason, I always thought like, oh yeah, well, maybe we'll get another blizzard or we'll get another ice storm soon. And like slowly it dawned on me that it's like, oh, that just, that doesn't really happen. Um, there was another day when it like snowed. I know like Lake Charles has gotten snow since then. And there was even like a pretty decent amount of snow for Louisiana that has happened I want to say in the past 10 or so years, but, um, whatever it was, I just remember the last big snow event. I was actually like out, out of town. So I missed. (laughs) (laughs) I was bedridden. Unfortunately for me, something had happened to my back Mm. where I was physically unable to get out uh, of my bed. So it it was, it fell on the day that it snowed in Lake Charles. Yeah. So I was super sad about that. Couldn't even look out my window. I, just to talk about that ice storm one more time, the, the biggest memory I have is like we did suit up in cold weather clothing and like go out there. But we, um, I remember the icicles, like I'd never seen icicles before. And there were some big ones too. And obviously my parents were like, okay, be careful. Don't stand underneath an icicle. It could, it could drop down. But, you know, from like 
low-lying branches. Like I remember collecting icicles and we would bring them into the freezer in our house and so we could keep them, but they're, <laughs> they're going to melt eventually. But uh, we kept some icicles. I thought that was cool. <laughs> I think I think another reason why I find this show so cozy and so lovely is because at least for me and probably the same for you, Charles, we have this very romantic view of snow because it doesn't doesn't really happen where we're from. So when it, when we see right. it, it's romanticized. Right. We we have an entirely different experience with it. <laughs> uh, I think the first time that I ever saw snow like that I could remember was. Uh, the time that I went to Utah with my parents, uh, when my parents came to America, they went to Salt Lake City because that's where my dad got his um, like his PhD from. Like that's where his uh, not like mentor, but like the person that basically brought him over to America. Mm-hmm. He was like a professor, and he was like, "Hey, come like work in my lab, basically. Come mm. be like a student." And they lived uh, for the first couple of years of their life in Salt Lake City in Utah, and we went there sometime when I was still a child to go see how that place was. And I remembered that there was snow there and we went to like their old apartment building. Um, it was still in like the university area um, because my father was, you know, they had to live close to campus. They didn't have a car or anything like that. And I remember thinking how surreal it was. It was, it was a really, really strange experience because this was the location that like, I wasn't even physically there. I was not, I was born in Lake Charles. I was mm-hmm. not from Salt Lake city at all, but my parents had like a whole entire life in that yeah. place with wow. like these abandoned monkey bars and like this, like, I don't know what to call <laughs> that toy that like playground thing where it's like a half globe, but it's like filled with like all sorts of like, um, bars. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sort of like a geodesic dome in a way. Yeah. Where you can climb over it. Yeah. Kind of like monkey bars. Yeah. It had that. They were all abandoned, of course. Mm -hmm. This is like, you know, and it was in snow and it, it might've been one of the strangest feelings that I've had in my life. Cause I was looking out toward this abandoned uh, playground yeah. that surely no child was playing in and there was snow everywhere. Uh, I'd never seen snow really. And I was having to like internalize a lot. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so I was like 10 <laughs> trying to internalize all this stuff. And I was, it was too much for a 10 year old. Right. That's crazy. That's awesome. Uh, well, okay. Back to you. The shack here with Maggie and Joel. I wanted to also mention they're drinking, like they chilled the wine outside in the snow. They're drinking this, some Chardonnay or something they had. Acacia Chardonnay, I think he says. They're drinking wine in paper cups. It's so cute. And they've got these little paper plates with crackers, uh, canned oysters on crackers, you know, this little little tray, I guess, um, as their appetizer, maybe. And they do this uh, romantic moment. They share a kiss and Ed barges in. Very classic Northern Exposure move. Ed rushes in from the snow. He's got his goggles. Uh, You know, when he opens the door, it's like blasting in with snow. He's like heavily breathing. He's like, oh, thank God you're here. Very, um, very strong Kramer vibes, I thought. (laughs) He runs in and... (laughs) you know, loudly exclaims. Coming in, third wheeling it in, and unfortunately, you know, he's starving, he's dehydrated, so he eats all the food, he drinks all the wine, and as Joel calls it, he uh, destroyed it all, and, you Mm -hmm. know, obviously he meant, like, you destroyed the mood. In order to kill the time, they play Monopoly, Mm -hmm. and this is where, like, the conflict comes from, because in Monopoly, for those of you who never played it, um, 
there was a corner of the board called free parking. Uh, the rest of the board is populated by properties. And if you land on a property that's owned by somebody else, then you have to pay them. That happens to Joel. He lands on mm-hmm. one of Ed's properties and he has to pay $850. And then Maggie gets onto that space of free parking. And on this free parking space, in the Parker Brothers rules, you don't do anything you don't receive money, but you don't pay money. It's mm-hmm. a safe haven. But a lot of the times throughout the years, uh, people have introduced like this house rule where whenever you pass free parking, uh, I think you like the beginning of the game starts out with like 50 bucks on it. Yeah, and then you collect for, the 50. Different for different house rules, but I think that's that's how I've played it for sure. Right. And Joel takes umbrage to that fact because he's saying like, you know, that's not actually in the official rules. <laughs> All it does is prolong the game. And Joel is entirely correct. It's not in the rules. Um, a lot of the times people complain about Monopoly saying that it takes like six hours to complete. A lot of these house rules contribute to that. Mm. Um, I think the other rules that I remember off the top of my head is like when you land on a property, I think you have to buy it. There is no option to say you can't buy it. You either have to buy it, and if you don't buy it, it gets auctioned to the other players. Yes. Um, but there's also a rule that's like you can't buy anything on your first go around. Really? I think that's one of the original rules, but uh, maybe it's been added, but I'll, most people house rule that out, obviously. Oh, okay. I would, I would agree that Monopoly is a very long game. I wouldn't say... I wouldn't agree with what um, Joel says about it being like balanced. I think it's a very unbalanced game. Um, oh, it's inherently yeah. yeah. No, it's its whole point is to showcase <laughs> to show how unbalanced <laughs> things are. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But the, I think there is an argument to be made that like it has become a lot longer in length mm. due to all these like uh, little rules that we added on. But here's the interesting thing about this and how we can interpolate this into the wider picture of this episode. That house rule though. Doesn't that make the game like a little bit more fun? Oh, for sure. Like, isn't yeah. It? yeah. <laughs> it, it's fun. So isn't an impediment actually good? It's kind of going along with like, you know, the other thing that we talked about in involving money was the deficit spending mm-hmm. and how you like, it's not an intentional tool to be used permanently, but it is still good whenever you use it like that in that mm-hmm. manner. So right. I think there is some sort of parallel between there. Between sure, yeah. this little free parking rule and it not naturally existing in people just putting their own twist into it just to make it a little bit more fun. Yeah, I get that for sure. Um, and, you know, Maggie also calls Joel out. He's like, you're only making a big deal about this because you just had to pay Ed a lot of money. I mean, obviously, Joel seems pretty... Um, strong in his belief of like the idea, like we should play by the actual written rules, not any house rules. But Maggie clearly points out, it's like, look, I mean, you never mentioned any of this when, before we started playing and, you know, looks like they've been playing for a while, especially if, um, what Ed has like three houses or something on that property. But like, yeah, I mean, like they've probably passed, uh, free parking multiple times. If they're playing by the rule we were talking about, Charles, they probably put $50 in the middle to start. That's not in the rules. And Joel's just bringing this up now. Uh, we could tell Joel's in a sour mood, obviously, because Ed is there and he really lays it on thick. Um, but Ed is, you know, kind of seems like Ed might just be oblivious. I think Maggie, um, picks up on this for sure, but is a little, um, you know, she doesn't want to make a big scene about like, Hey, Joel, stop picking on Ed. 
like not in front of Ed, I guess. I don't know. Right. It's almost like Ed is um, a child in some way because Maggie is extremely concerned with his feelings. Uh, we can see this play over in the next scene where they're trying to get to sleep. Ed is obviously in between them, stopping any intimate action right there. And Ed's rolling around and talking in his sleep. He says, uh, how much for the peas, Ruthann? <laughs> uh, he's stopping Joel from sleeping and Joel talks to Maggie about it. He's like, this is so annoying. And then he wakes up Ed and tells him to his face. He's like, stop doing this. And Maggie is saying like, you know, why don't you just kick in his teeth while you're at it? Yeah. And, you know, he's even like, I think even Ed even wakes up at a certain point and they're still talking. And Joel's like, I don't like Maggie's like, he can hear you. He's awake right now. And Joel's like, I don't, are you sure? Like, it's really kind of hard to tell, but you know, it's like, you're just been a rude and abusive to Ed ever since he got here. I mean, I think we know why, but I definitely don't think it's warranted. I think Joel is being, being a pretty sour, <laughs> sour sport. All right. In the next scene, when they wake up, they find that Ed's already gone. And Maggie has a fear that maybe Ed, and you know, he could feel the disappointment coming off of Joel. So he just wanted to leave without causing any fuss. But Maggie is still concerned. She's saying like, oh, the temperatures are still terrible out there. We got to go find them. And Joel is really rooted in his belief. He's like, I don't want to. Like, in the back of his mind, he kind of feels like Ed deserved all of this. But then Maggie does something really interesting. She turns on the lamp light. Mm. And as soon as she turns on this light, she really lays it into Joel. She's like... You, you told him that you eat all the food, you take up all the floor space, his feelings might have gotten hurt. Like, come mm -hmm. on, don't do that. So it seems like the light kind of revealed all of their emotions and their feelings. Yeah. Joel says, I mean, I didn't mean to hurt his feelings. Things were just going so well with us. Then he shows up. It's not really an apology here, but I, as you're saying, Charles, maybe he's starting to come around, see things from what um, Maggie is trying to point out to him. Because, yeah, I think now he's like a, a little worried that he might have hurt Ed's feelings. He's starting to realize, okay, Ed, you know, is going to be mad at me. Ed, Ed has run off um, out of, you know, shame or anger, uh, any of those reasons. So, yeah, it's going out to find Ed. It, it, it's all, it all works out good in the end because he does find Ed. Ed is just out there shooting some film because like they only get what, like an hour and a half of daylight per day. So he's like, I just, I thought I'd go out and um, shoot some film while I had a little bit of daylight. And Joel starts apologizing now to Ed. And at first it's kind of like going over Ed's head. He's like, um, Joel's like, I'm sorry about all the things I said. Ed's like, oh, you're right about the free parking and stuff like that. I guess, I guess that was a bit, uh, it wasn't, you know, whatever. And Joel's like, no, no, no. I mean about all the other stuff. And it's just not getting across. Um, it's weird. I, I don't, this is kind of a strange ending, but to me, what I took away is like, even if Ed never had his feelings hurt or it, it's kind of unclear, but even if Ed is fine and, you know, wasn't bothered by Joel. Joel realizes that the way he was acting, even if it didn't hurt Ed's feelings, was like a pretty bad, a bad way to act to your friend. And, you know, Joel's like realizing his mistake and remembering how much he loves Ed as like a friend and someone who's always there for him. So in the end, I guess like there's an apology, but not really. And, but overall, I guess Joel has learned a lesson. I don't know. What would you make of this 
Yeah, I think that it's not really like a formal apology, but uh, Joe does accept responsibility. He says, like, I was, you know, I was too harsh. Why don't we come back inside? Uh, I'll let you be, uh, you know, I'll <laughs> yeah. let you be this certain Monopoly piece. And Ed's like, no, I actually like the other one more. <laughs> uh, and they head back home. Mm-hmm. Um, they head back to the cabin right there. The ending scene that we're going to have with Joel, Maggie, and Ed is them coming back into town. Presumably, I guess, like, the car started working again. I, I don't know if it's, like, caused by the, yeah. the temperature fluctuation yeah, or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, they drive it back. Yeah, they make it to Joel's office. And Joel's like, all right, Maggie, do you want me to drive you to your home? And he's like, no, my truck's just right there. And from there... We get into a scene in which, like, I don't fully understand. Yeah, let, uh, let me play the soundbite, because I think I have a, I think I know what's going on, but it is kind of unclear, but we'll, so we'll listen to it, then we'll talk about it. Okay. I'm sorry about last night. Yeah, well, me too, huh? What are you sorry about? Well, you know what. What are you sorry about? Everything, you know, just the way I acted and Ed. What do you think I was sorry about? Well, you know, I kind of thought, but never mind. It's nothing. Anyway, good night, huh? Right. So my interpretation to me, what's going on here. So Joel is apologizing and Maggie is also apologizing. Joel's like, well, what do you have to be sorry about? And then Maggie is almost embarrassed about like what she was supposed to say. She's like, oh, nothing. Never mind. Uh, I guess what they're trying to like dance around is like, Maggie was sorry that it's like, yeah, it was going so well. Like we were about to do it. Sorry that we didn't get to do it or something. Mm. <laughs> like, is that, does that make any sense? Or do you have no, any that, other that ideas? Totally too? makes sense. <laughs> totally makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess we're, that's where we're going with. I think that's uh, it's, it's like an awkward kind of coy flirtatious uh, sort of misunderstanding here. And I think, maybe part of the reason why it's kind of obscure and vague, like what they're talking about. They're not really speaking frankly about it. It's because maybe it, they are talking about sex and I don't know. I mean, this is airing on like primetime TV. So, but they, I guess it was the nineties. So maybe they didn't want to, you know, push too far on any boundaries with sensors or something. Okay. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense then. Uh, and yeah, kind of ends really adorably right there. Uh, we get a good sense of the relationship that it's going pretty well. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, they're, they're kind of like, it ends with them in the car or she's about to leave. They kiss? Do they kiss? Yeah, they kiss, they kiss. And then, um, we cut to like, uh, what is it? Like, uh, um, Ruthann's ending with the divine comedy and the stock footage. And, uh, yeah, just a, like a wonderful little encapsulated episode, cozy. And I do like, we mentioned this already, but the sort of how Italian springs through uh, into some of these other storylines as well in some ways, because the title is taken from Italian. Okay, Charles, it's that point in our podcast where we're going to invite on a guest, typically someone who has never seen Northern Exposure and get their thoughts on this episode completely out of context, except today... For our guest, uh, we've got my good friend, Mark Twain. His name is actually Mark, first name, Twain, middle name. I won't say his last name, but we call him Mark Twain or Mark, I guess, works too. But I don't know. Mark Twain is just so much cooler. So we 
<laughs> so I call him Mark Twain oftentimes. Uh, but Mark Twain is a writer. Uh, I Obviously, I met him at film school, so in the context of writing movies. But uh, he still writes in many forms today in a lot of different formats. But um, so he was telling me very serendipitously, uh, I had asked him to be a guest on this podcast a few weeks ago. And when it came to checking in and like reminding him and sending him an episode to watch, uh, he was like, hey, I'm seeing this lady actually. And it's her, it's like her favorite show of all time. So we need to get her on the podcast eventually. But um, yeah, just kind of strange that that sort of coincidence happened here. And um, so as you'll hear, uh, Mark Twain's going to tell you that he he's already watched the pilot episode. So he has a little bit of context. But uh, the, the commentary that he's going to provide here is about today's episode. So without further ado, let's hear what uh, Mark has to say. So my viewing experience was a little bit tainted. I cheated just a little bit. I got to see uh, the first episode, which gives me a little bit of context. Uh, and I guess something that surprised me the most, because this is season five, episode 17, I guess is how little the show has changed, which I guess is kind of part of its appeal. Uh, you know, you still have the same DJ. Uh, you still have the same will they, won't they, you know, love interest. Um, you still have kind of the same, uh, he, he's been there, it's got to be season five, and he's still, his main thing is he's fantasizing about not being there. He still has not accepted the fact that he is stuck there, uh, which I guess is amusing, uh, but, or maybe it's just the, the plot of this particular episode because he was supposed to go to a conference. Uh, and then the other thing is that, gosh, golly, like the, the main character, uh, Fletcher, whatever, he's still such an insufferable little self-centered narcissistic sleazeball <laughs> he still hasn't accepted uh, that he's not better than these people in some ways he's gotten a lot better with dealing with the, the common people uh, which the way that he was able to um, which actually my favorite subplot the way that he was able to talk uh, Walt I believe into uh, accepting the uh, UV light with the visor I thought that subplot was incredible um, and again the other subplot with um I'm so terrible with the names of the characters. Ruth Ann and um, Shelby. Shelley. Shelley. Yeah, with Shelley, and uh, which had a very surprising uh, ending where we were transported finally outside of um, of Alaska. And I, I, I'm struggling. I feel like there is a connection with the subplots, but at the same time, they feel very disconnected. And I did very much enjoy, I feel like, the subplots involving the regular people of the town, more so the main character, just because I feel like his motivations are so shallow. <laughs> He's just so, ah, he just basically wants to get his wet man like that's that's how i feel about this guy like ed is sneezing and he's a doctor and he's just like are you gonna sneeze all night because he's just so mad that his kiss got interrupted it's like grow up dude you're gonna kiss her later like come on he's like oh man we have to go out and potentially save this guy's life oh no and he's kind of whiny about it he's just so whiny i don't know what this hot girl uh maggie sees in him because she's a badass and she's totally cool but um, but sorry, circling back, uh, it was very cool how uh, I think there's something I haven't quite connected the subplots and if they are even connected, not that they have to be, but it's something to do with escapism. Uh, he has like an interesting vision at the beginning, uh, although again, like his is not nearly as beautiful as the ending escapism, obviously because he's a sleazeball, and so his fantasy is about other educated people who also are exposing you know their breasts to him and they want to 
you know, he has like a basically like a little threesome fantasy, like, oh, yes, tell us about your article. But there's instead another very beautiful escapism at the end with Shelley and Ruth, I think you, yeah. Ruth Ann. Um, I have someone assisting with names here. Uh, <laughs> uh, at where we get transported to, I believe, Italy um, at the end. And so that was very unexpected and, and beautiful, and I feel like uh, maybe the show doesn't do often, which, like, even the opening credits has stayed the same. And so it seems like the show maybe usually contains you in this city, um, you know, in Alaska. City? Town? There's, like, one bar. <laughs> Whatever. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. But again, I don't have the context of the other episodes, so I'm not sure how often we get to escape Alaska. It feels like that's a pretty rare treat for this episode. Uh, but yeah, I really like the uh, the irony of uh, like <laughs> the UV light and how specific it is to that area of uh, seasonal effectiveness uh, uh, disorder. Uh, because again, in Alaska, not that I've ever lived there, but they were mentioning like they get almost no sunlight at certain points of the year. And so it was cute that um, he's like first against it, and then he's just like addicted to it, you know. And he goes into this like manic, you know, cocaine uh, and a rat. I think was the metaphor that the, um, the DJ. What's the DJ's name? Chris. Chris. That Chris um, uh, calls him or uses that metaphor, and they have, like, the AA intervention. I liked all that stuff. And then we got to know uh, a lot more about him that leads into, like, a, a reveal of his, his backstory on Wall Street. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a very pleasant show. Um, I just... <laughs> I, my, my favorite part about it is everything except for the main character. He's just... He, I, I guess I need to see him save more people's lives and stuff um, because, yeah, he's just so still resentful. It's like five years, man. You haven't accepted that you're here, and there's this hot girl that's into you for some reason, even though you're such a d- um, And I thought he was engaged, but I guess something happened with that. I also thought she was with somebody else, but I guess something happened to him too. And the mayor. How did the mayor get elected when no one likes her? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I'm going to keep watching the show And I'm going to find out the answers to this um, Oh, well no, we had a little uh, Irrelevant stuff in the beginning So I'm over five minutes, I'm going to stop here I'm going to answer your other question uh, But thanks for uh, encouraging me to watch The fifth season, 17th episode I totally would have Eventually watched it uh, Thanks to somebody else in my life uh, <laughs> But it was cool uh, Serendipitous anyways Alright, bye Lee. Yeah, let me, let me just go ahead and read a loud question. Have you ever been in a situation where you were stuck or didn't want to be in a place, and in the end, you hopefully gained something or found yourself changed for the better? Mm. If nothing comes to mind, feel free to skip it. So I'm going to have a, a somewhat, um, maybe a, a boring answer, because uh, the first thing that comes to mind, because of the, the context of who is recording the show, uh, highly, um, would be when I first came down to New Orleans, but I chose to come down there for school. Um, but we were, I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't have to be nice to you, know. we were lied to that the dorms were going to be done. And um, when we arrived, uh, some people were able to move into the new dorms, but a lot of people, because I think the southern half of the dorms were not finished for a long time, we had to, uh, and this may not be completely correct, my memory may be fuzzy, but we had to stay in uh, Bienville Hall. And I was supposed to have a roommate, and that roommate never showed up. And so and it was, like, really cold. You couldn't adjust, like, the AC, or at least I don't think that I was able to. And you shared a bathroom. And I shared a bathroom with two people I never met, but they had, like, horrible um, 
some sort of like sinus problems. And so I would just hear at like 5 a.m. just like, like truly like horror, like kind of noises. And I didn't know anybody yet. I was like, I didn't have any friends. I moved here from Kentucky. And so I was just like alone in this like creepy, uh, like these dorms that look like a prison or like an insane asylum. And I'm like alone. I'm like really cold and the people in my bathroom that shared like I could not lock the door if I wanted to because it locks on the other side it just like sounds like it's some sort of like zombie dying and I've heard the stories that someone uh, like was murdered on this floor that I was staying at and so it was pretty horrible and uh, but I ended up meeting Ben Matheny and we recorded for a 24-hour film festival a uh, little short film about someone who is stuck at uh bienville hall and he's like it's like this really weird little psychedelic uh you know like bullshit short film called bye bye benny heights but it was how i met bim Thini, who's a great actor and uh eventually we, you know we kept making movies together and that eventually became uh elysian fields independent or, or efi which you might be familiar with but uh that would be my tidbit uh and so yeah this is three minutes which is too long but love you lou all right bye all right. Thanks, Mark. That was so that was a lot of uh, thoughts from Mark. I want to take it from the beginning because I started taking notes to his uh, commentary. I think very, very first off, uh, a very important note that Mark brings up, at least in uh, with his context of the show, is that the show has changed very little that from the pilot episode to now. I mean, I would say it's it, there's a lot that's happened and it has changed a lot, but there's so many elements that are still there from the pilot. Yeah, I think like there's a core cast of characters that haven't changed, nor have their jobs changed. You know, mm-hmm. Maggie's still a pilot, Joel's still a doctor, Chris is still a DJ, Maurice is still a businessman. <laughs> Not really made clear exactly what he does. Right. <laughs> but uh, Rich guy. Just a really rich fella. Um, but like you said, like there's like a lot of little things that go under the radar that you might not have realized. Like uh, I think it took him maybe a little bit longer to realize that Joe and Maggie were in a relationship. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he brought it up, but like I don't know if he knew that like Shelly had a baby now. Yeah. I don't think she he got brought married that up. And had a yeah. baby. <laughs> well, yeah, it's weird because she like almost gets married. Well, like, I don't want to spoil because if Mark is listening to this, uh, you know, I, I assume he is going to continue watching, so I won't say too much. But yeah, a lot of things have happened. Uh, obviously, you saw in this episode, Mark, if you're listening, Shelly uh, has a baby now. Um, he was right to assume he was saying like, you know, in the first episode, he thought, wasn't didn't Joel have like a fiance? And wasn't Maggie also seeing someone else? I guess that something happened with that because now Joel and Maggie are together in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh... You know, speaking on that, it, I feel like this is one of those things where he had to do this uh, recording. Like he had to come on the pod. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Because because his significant other <laughs> loves Northern Exposure. Yeah. Like it was one of those things where you like he he couldn't have said no. Like he can't. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna come and like talk to her and like, hey, I was invited to be on this podcast that exclusively talks about your favorite show. And it's like, oh, awesome. I think it's I'm like, I, pass. I, didn't, I didn't say yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that is pretty funny. That is such a crazy coincidence. Yeah, uh, because I think I want I don't know. I don't want to assume I don't know how long they've been seeing each other. But, you know, when I saw Mark recently, maybe a month or a few weeks ago, uh, I was mentioning, hey, you should come on my podcast. And he's like, have you ever heard of Northern Exposure? Of course, he had never heard of it. 
And then, you know, just, you know, now talking to him again as he's watching the episode and sending the recording, uh, he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, this uh, person I'm seeing loves Northern Exposure. Such a this, weird coincidence. This is it, man. This is the uh, this is the linchpin. This is <laughs> the the thing that's going to connect them and solidify their relationship. It's got the rock in which they build it a fod. Yeah. Just going to be uh, like somehow <laughs> in the wedding vows, you know? Yeah. Just going to be like... Invite uh, us to the wedding. <laughs> uh, all right. What else can we say about Mark's commentary here? He was a huge fan of the Walt plot line with the um, light visor that they're wearing. Um, and uh, similarly to a lot of guests on the podcast... Uh, some people will say that Fleischman is quite, uh, well, Mark says, insufferable, self-centered, narcissistic sleazeball. And I think that's true. I think a lot of people's response to Joel could be quite negative. Not everybody, um, but I think, and I'm as I'm sure you'll, you'll see, Mark, as you continue watching, I think it's, uh, as you guessed, like maybe you said, maybe I need to see him save more people's lives. Like that is a thing. Like he is a... He is a great doctor and takes care of his patients. Uh, but there is a part of that sort of insufferable quality that I think is fun to watch in that um, he, 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 he's the victim of a lot of, a lot of problems. He's always like, you know, beat down upon. And that's kind of fun to watch um, even because, you know, he's going to pull out in the end, you know, he's going to come out okay, but, uh, but it's just fun to see him kind of suffer in a way. Yeah. I like that he talked about uh, escapism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we touched upon that too. I honestly, trying to rack my brain. I'm not too sure, but I know that we <laughs> talked about the windows in the yeah. beginning. Like um, in the very first one, there's a panning shot toward the window, toward the winter outside, and then the episode ends with uh, a lateral tracking shot toward uh, the same window, but then it fades into Italy. Mm-hmm. He was saying that like he wasn't too sure if they're brought out of Alaska a lot, and in this particular case. I don't know if they're still brought out of Alaska. Like it's got, it's got footage. Feels like more of a hallucination or something. Yeah. (laughs) Like someone's, uh, someone's montage or something like that. Yeah. So I don't know if I would categorize this as, uh, taking a trip out of the state, but to answer his question, you know, it, 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 you know, it happens. Yeah. I guess figuratively, this is an escape. Uh, there, there have been, I think, uh, we had a recent episode where, um, Holling and Shelly go to Canada briefly uh, there's an episode where they go to Gross Point, Michigan, but I think mostly, yeah, we're pretty self-contained. This episode specifically, Charles, we talked about how, how um, I don't want to say trapped, but just like how indoors and like how close together everything feels. Yeah, there was a feeling of like uh, being insular, yeah. um, whether it was done by the lighting, like the one singular light uh, that's going to be trying to envelop this lonely room or just Maggie and Joel being in that one cabin for a large majority of the time, there was like a feeling that, you know, was kind of claustrophobic. Right. And before we move on to Mark's, uh, he answers our question that we ask our guests. Uh, he also said, uh, he brought up this point, you know, talking about how did the mayor get elected? No one likes her. How did Edna get elected, Charles? Because I mean, I remember the episode, like the reasoning behind it is that Holling is sort of this de facto mayor just because no one will run against him and the town likes Holling. So he's the mayor. But, um, you know, like the reason why Edna wins, is it 
remind remind me i think this is right she will she runs on the platform of like she wants a stop sign in front of her house because the 18 wheelers drive by too fast and she wins because she's like i'm going to get things done if Holling remains mayor, nothing will change. So people are more voting for the um, idea of, of change, that their vote can affect some change in the world. They're not really voting for Edna. Like, why Why does Edna <laughs> get elected? Well, I mean, isn't that simply all that we ever really vote for? Like, whenever we vote, we're not specifically voting for the person that matches us yeah, one for one ideologically, but really whoever shares our closest values. Yeah. You know, we go for that fella right there and, you know, hope that they deliver. You know, in Edna's case, She's saying like, okay, we don't have to be like very closed off and conservative. We can enact change. I can bring it. She's got like this fiery disposition. And I guess the, you know, that message really spoke to the townsfolk. Maybe like their approach under hauling was like a little too laissez-faire. And so they wanted this small little change. And maybe they also knew that like in the back of their mind, that like mayor doesn't really matter that much. So it's not like they were handing over the keys to something like really, really important. It was just mostly for like small things like that. And they felt like maybe, you know, if Edna gets her stop sign, maybe I'll be able to get like a, you know, a very small thing in front of my house, you know, just very incremental changes like that. And maybe that's how she won. Yeah, actually, I like that a lot. And uh, that's, I mean, uh, Mark, it's a really good episode, Democracy in America. I think that's season three. But so, yeah, Mark answers our question about being in a place uh, that maybe you're uncomfortable, kind of a fish out of water, much like Joel Fleischman. But in the end, uh, you came out for the better. You know, you kind of learned something about yourself or, um, you know, gained something from this position. And uh, Mark talks about coming down to New Orleans to go to school at the University of New Orleans. Mark actually, I guess, is a year or so before me, because when I came to UNO, they had finished the dorms. But I do remember Bienville Hall. I believe, I want to say that building is still standing. Maybe they demolished it. I'm not sure. But I had never been inside. I remember like by the time I got to UNO, you know, there, no one was staying in Bienville Hall anymore. It was just the new dorms, but people were like, you know, sneaking into Bienville Hall. And I had also heard that someone had been murdered in Bienville Hall. So again, I don't know the validity of that, but I'm pretty sure like when I was going there, yeah, that was just like a fact that, um, that we knew this about this, um, previous dorm. But, uh, yeah, what a hor- what were your dorms like, Charles? Uh, okay. So I lived in a place, the entire complex was called the Pentagon because it was five (laughs) different dorms put in the shape of a, of a Pentagon right there. And they housed, if I remember correctly, they were like international relations. Not even too sure how that's a major still. Mm -hmm. I still think they were messing with me when they told me that was international (laughs) relations, um, uh, journalism, which was what I originally was. And, uh, I I just, I honest to God can't remember. They were also like similar fields to that, like very liberal arts fields. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was like kind of wild, but not like super duper wild. So the thing about it is that, like I described, it's a Pentagon. So you have this courtyard in the middle of that Pentagon and students would do all sorts of things. They would bring couches into there. They would draw with chalk on the sidewalk uh, inside there, just all sorts of things. And especially during game days, when it was like a large amount of football activity, people would be going really nuts in that dorm. Uh, I lived on the first floor in the first door to the left. It was 
probably the best location you could ever have. <laughs> like, I really liked just that. Just like instantly get to your room and get out? Yes, but it was right next to the stairs. So okay. I do remember spending a lot of times, you know, hearing people get in and then going in mm-hmm. and out for doing there because mm-hmm. it was right next to the door. Uh, I don't have, like, a lot of, like, terrible memories of my dorm living. I, I told the story already where I, like, I would do laundry at, like, 2 a.m. Yes. Because... Yeah. <laughs> that that's when like nobody was doing laundry. You just like leave, and I have to cross that courtyard through the Pentagon because the laundry machine was on like, like a building to the left of it. So I'd have to cross through there. It'd be two a.m. There were still people, you know, going on about because you know you're freshman, you're in college, and you're like whatever. Uh, so I remember that experience, but other than that. Any spooky, uh, was your dorms haunted or anything like that? <laughs> no, definitely not haunted. The neatest thing that I lived next to was called uh, the Indian Mounds. And as soon as you leave the Pentagon, there would be these two like grassy knolls. I don't know how to describe it. They're like these big the hills. hills. Yeah. Yeah. Just on the campus. And that, they, were they, they were enough to, Indian burial mounds? No, okay. they, I, not probably a racist reason for why we called it that, oh. honestly. And that's his real name. It's not, it's his okay. real name. But like, uh, <laughs> students would like climb over it. Sometimes you would study there. Sometimes you would have a picnic on those two hills. They weren't like particularly, uh, wide in area. I got to make that clear to the, to the mm-hmm. listeners right there, but they were enough where you can set up camp and stuff like that. But then I think as soon as I left the dorms, the Indian Mounts could no longer be climbed on because there were too many people climbing on it and they wanted to designate it as some sort of like natural preservation. So with the Mm. amount of people that were climbing over it, they were kind of damaging the mounds. So in an effort to preserve it, they erected a fence around it. (laughs) Yeah. So now like it was a very weird thing to look at now. You're just looking at like these two... Yeah, two green hills <laughs> in the middle of campus. And you're like, what? Like, I can't even go on those hills. Yeah. Uh, but no, definitely no spooky stories like that. Um, yeah. We next to the cafeteria. So that was kind of neat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nothing spooky about. So I was in Pontchartrain Hall, which was uh, the new dorms, I think, that Mark Twain is referencing. Um, and we, I think I talked about this earlier on the podcast cause someone on Twitter was like asking about like, wait, what are your dorms like? Cause I, we, I think I was probably talking about how I had the coolest dorm room in all of America. Like this is just the best dorm room of all time. We had like wait, a projector set up. Oh, okay. Um, okay. <laughs> were you saying what made it the coolest? Yeah. <laughs> we had like a, we had like a drum set or like we had band practices in there and it was very packed. Yeah. For my, if you, if you want, <laughs> listen, nurse, if you want like a third-party objective statement, it was a very packed dorm room. Like as soon as you walked into that it dorm was room, a it was funhouse of yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Like you would split. It, it, it would you would either go to the left or the right or the center. Those are yeah. like the three directions you can go to as soon as you enter the dorm. But it's very triangular in that nature. I do remember the uh, projecting screen that you guys had set up mm-hmm. and the drums and. Uh, Something in my memory is telling me that you did, did you guys like decorate the elevators? Oh, there, this is a story for another time. Well, I'll just tell it now. So, uh, me and my roommates, and this is mostly Kyle, who we need to get on the podcast before the end of the season. That's gonna definitely stamp in that. We're gonna try to make that happen. But Kyle is my roommate and also a huge fan of Northern Exposure. It's, I don't know how we haven't gotten him on yet, but. Uh, we, God, this is actually like, this is not, I don't need to talk about this right now. It's going to eat up so much time, but 
I guess I'll just go for it. Uh, so there was uh, elevators in the dorms and um, they were tiled floor and the tiles kept coming up and it was just like so ratty and nasty and like people would just like rip the tiles out and throw them around and um, you know, the, the, they, they never fixed them or like redid the floors. It was just like, I don't know, everything else in the dorms was fairly new and like pretty nice, I guess. It was just such a drag to go into those elevators. So we had it, uh, in our heads one night that we were going to steal all the tiles and paint a, um, paint some sort of piece of art on these tiles that you could only like when you form all the tiles together, it would make the picture. Um, and I had, I, I don't know whose idea it was, but we decided, uh, to make one of those puzzles. I don't know what you call these, but it's a puzzle where you have, it's three by three, but you have eight pieces. And one of the pieces is like out of the nine square, one of the pieces is missing. So you have eight pieces that you can slide around and try to form this image. Do you know the name of this type of puzzle or? I, I don't know the name of it, but I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. I think you can probably picture this listener in your head. It's like the sliding puzzle, eight pieces and a three by three square. And so we drew an octopus, I guess, cause it has eight legs. Uh, and I have this cause Kyle recently gave me the tiles. So I now have this, I need to try what? to figure out some way to frame it or something. Illegality. Um, <laughs> The cops are like rolling up to my house right now. Like they demand. <laughs> I, okay, I actually, I still have the key to the speech and debate room in my, in my college. I never gave it back. Yeah, I'm can, sure they changed the locks by now. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, probably not. It was pretty much like a closet. <laughs> Hang on, I'm sorry. I'm going like way off topic. Yeah, we're way off. This is going too long. So I want to get back to, um, Mark. Well, uh, just to finish the story with the tile thing, they, the, the, Dorms did end up like confiscating the tiles and they did redo the elevators, which were really nice. Like that was, I, we take credit. Uh, I don't know if that's why, but I think so. Like, you know, our, our uh, graffiti or vandalism made them want to update it. But the cool thing was, is we were so, we we're such good friends with our RA on the floor. They loved us so much that they would give us all the lost and found stuff all the time. Like I remember I got like uh, a whole like, crate of like magic, the gathering cards that someone had like <laughs> ordered and it never got delivered. Like the person who was staying at the dorms, I guess like left. So they just had, they're like, you're a nerd. You like magic, the gathering, right? Uh, but anyway, our RAs gave us the tiles. So they, they stole the confiscated tiles and returned them to us kind of under the, under the rug there. No one knew. Uh, but returning to Mark's, um, commentary here, this horror story of Bienville Hall. It turns out good because he met uh, Ben Matheny, who has been a guest on this podcast. Actually, wow, is Ben the guest on Democracy in America? I'm trying to remember. Let's see. Yeah. So there you go, Mark. You need to watch that episode and listen to Ben's commentary for that episode. Um, but yeah, I, li I like that idea. He did the uh, film fest, like a what do you say? 48 hour film fest? Uh, 24 hours. 24 hours. Wow. Made a movie in 24 hours called Bye Bye Benny Heights. I don't think I've ever seen that one, but I do remember, I mean, I've seen a lot of great short films that Mark has uh, made and been involved with, but one really goofy one that I remember with Ben Matheny, I don't remember the title, but it's like Ben plays this character that's obsessed with trying to meet Ellen DeGeneres or something like that. Hmm. Mark, if you remember this or if I'm not making this up, please uh, send me the link to watch that again. Um, but hey, it worked out good in the end there. You know, fish out of water story. Going off to college for the first time is very much a fish out of water story, I'd say. 
Uh, so yeah, I think that's a great, a great example, but, um, Mark, thank you so much for watching this episode, taking the time to provide your commentary. I'm excited for you to watch more of Northern Exposure. Uh, it really is like probably my favorite show of all time. One of the best shows. Uh, it's something I saw when I was in high school and it's just kind of like stuck with me. I think it really just like shaped who I am because I saw it at that age, but, uh, I'm excited for you to see it. Uh, so Charles, we're going to be back next week talking about the next episode, season five, episode 18. It's called Fish Story. Do you have a guess as to um, what's going to happen there? Uh, is that a play off of something? Is there something called a fish story? Mm. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is Big Fish. Big but Fish. I, I think that's the, after. Um, yeah, it's like the Tim Burton movie. Yeah. Well, it's going to involve fish, right? How could they have an episode? <laughs> yeah, it's going to have to have fish. <laughs> no, but like, is it a is it a pun off of like something like a fish story? Mm, I can't. Yeah, I can't think of anything. Yeah, I'm going to guess that it's going to involve a fish. Let's go with the literal sense. Like, let's say that there's fishing, there's fishes. Maybe they even catch the fish and eat the fish. You know, I don't think it's like a metaphorical sense of fishing. Yeah, we're going to have some fish. I think uh, tune in next week for that. And Charles, uh, thanks for potting with me. I'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Mark Twain for being our guest analyst. If you like to write in, you can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com at Northern Overpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. And of course, thank you for listening.